Hi, I'm Pastor Willie Grills. You're listening to Gospel Tangents, the best source for Mormon history, science, and theology. I'm Rick Bennett. You know, I get requests every once in a while to get some outside perspectives on Mormonism. So I'm excited to have a non-evangelical, run-of-the-mill Protestant pastor um, who lives in Arkansas. So it's going to be a fun conversation. We're going to learn a little bit more about how uh, Protestants fight with each other and a little bit about Lutheran history and Martin Luther. So it's going to be a fun conversation. Um, Pastor Willie Grills from Arkansas is going to be on the show, and he's going to even ask me some questions about Mormonism, so we'll have to see if I get those questions right. (laughs) Anyway, now back to our conversation. Well, welcome to Gospel Tangents. I'm excited to have a non-evangelical on the show for the first time, I think. We've got uh, a Lutheran pastor. Could you go ahead and tell us who you are? Yeah, I'm uh, Pastor Willie Grills. I'm a uh, member of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, a conservative confessional Lutheran denomination, a uh, pastor in Avila, Arkansas, just outside of Little Rock. Um, just what Missouri Synod means, I'm sure we'll get to in this interview, but uh, a little bit different from uh, some of the other guys you've had on. Um, yeah, he's, you know, you mentioned not evangelical, but I think, uh, you know, 400 years ago, if you're using that definition of evangelical, uh, that might work. Uh, but uh, it's a loaded term in the 20th and 21st century. So. <laughs> yes, so one of the things that's amazing to me, um, I don't usually point out when people are subscribers, but Willie, you've been a subscriber for a long time to Gospel Tangents. And yes. I'm just yeah. fascinated why a Lutheran pastor would be interested in Mormon history. Can you can you tell us why that is? Well, yeah. It's an excellent question. Um, Mormonism, if I can use that term, uh, okay. is it's it's a safe space, right? We're non-correlated um, is, here, so it's good. <laughs> yeah, is um, you know one of the things that I really uh, enjoy studying and focusing on is uh, you know 19th century religion in America. Uh, Mormonism is integral to that part of American history. Um, it comes out of a very interesting time, um, as far as the revivalism of the time. You're getting into the Second Great Awakening. And um, Mormonism is a force uh, that we have to uh, that we have to learn about, that we have to understand, um, not only as Americans anymore, but as far as global uh, Christianity is concerned. Uh, a lot of the apologetics around it, um, you know, have kind of uh, mixed effectiveness, we can say, on both sides. And so I think that understanding it, um, you know, as an historian is important is as important as it is interesting. And then theologically, too, the development of it, um, both very interesting and, of course, very important. Uh, you know, when, when the missionaries come and knock on your door, uh, you know, what are you expecting here? Um, are you going to present a caricature of those guys, or are we going to be able to talk to them um, in a fair and honest way? So, and, and plus, again, the history for me is just extremely, extremely interesting and, again, important. Well, that's great. You know, like I said, I'm always interested, and and plus, I do have requests to say we need some more outsiders, you know, to to kind of get a, a perspective on Mormonism. So I, yeah. I appreciate G- Gentiles, Gentiles, yeah, Gentiles. Please. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> and so it, it's nice to 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 get it. So you actually have a podcast. Why, why don't you give us a little uh, spiel on your podcast? Uh, sure. Uh, the podcast is a word fitly spoken. Um, it is uh, a uh, podcast that focuses on uh, a Lutheran perspective of history uh, and theology and cultural engagement. 
Um, it is very Lutheran, so there is some inside baseball, but I think there's a lot there that uh, people could, could profit from. Um, I'm certainly there's a lot there that people are going to disagree with. And uh, so, yeah, uh, wordfitlyspoken.org. It's available on all the podcast apps. Um, there is another wordfitly spoken out there. Uh, that's not us, and they couldn't be uh, more different if we tried. So you'll know which one's ours when you find it. <laughs> so I've, I've always been curious. This is one of the questions I haven't asked you. A word fitly spoken. Why is it fitly spoken? What, what does that mean exactly? Is that like a Lutheran thing? Well, or? no, that's from the Bible. Uh, okay. You know, a word fitly spoken. Um, you know, uh, so it uh, it's it's from the proverb. Uh, so a word fitly spoken is uh, now, of course, when you put me on the spot, it's Proverbs twenty five. But here we go. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and pictures of silver, as an earring of gold and ornament of fine gold. So is a wise reprover upon an obedient ear. So, you know, it's about speaking uh, good things to one another and wise things to one another. Well, and it was interesting. You told me about your podcast and that you had actually done. Is it three or four episodes on Joseph Smith? I can't remember. Uh, two, two on Joseph, yeah. Two on Joseph and one on the secession crisis. That's what it was. Yeah. So, so far. Yeah. So tell us about the reception that, that your group had. Um, well, it was in the early days, so the audience wasn't quite as big. Um, you know, they're, they're typical people that, that like what we do. Uh, one of the things, especially on historical episodes, I absolutely insist on is fairness and uh, being as objective as we can be. We're not going to agree on everything, but at least trying to be fair to the record. Uh, I think some people would have liked us to have been more pointed, um, which is an odd thing for me to hear because I am someone who can at times be a little bit too quick with a sword. Uh, but, yeah, there were some people that thought that we should have gone, you know, full uh, Joseph was an American Muhammad or something like that, and that really is not the purpose of what uh, those episodes were. <laughs> And I, I can still hear, like, if a Mormon audience was listening, to, you know, the, every once in a while you'd hear these things, well, the purported prophet, or, you know, a little, little, little yeah, jab there. That, oh, that uh, yeah, and, and I'm sure that for a Mormon audience, I wouldn't, yeah. it would not have been close enough to hagiography for them. <laughs> but I would say it was very fair. I was excited to find out that uh, I was listening along. Oh, oh actually, we have uh, Daniel Stoner above my head here. I can't forget where he is, right there. Um, yeah. And that you had talked about Alice Cooper, and I and I, I texted you and said, "Did you get that from my podcast?" And you said, "Yes." <laughs> so yeah. that was that was a lot of fun. So yeah, I thought you were very fair, um, you know. And it's funny, um, in my conversation with Dr. Christopher Thomas, um, he's a Pentecostal uh, theologian. And uh, we talked about the missionaries, and, and Chris said, and the missionaries don't know nothing. And I was like, <laughs> you know, when I was a missionary, I didn't know nothing either. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I think you, you actually have a, a very good grasp of, of uh, especially Joseph Smith history. So, uh, so well done. I'll, I'll give you a big compliment well, there. Thank you. I appreciate so. that. Um, so you talked a little bit about the uh, Missouri Synod. Is that how you said? I always thought it was Synod, but it's Synod. Is yeah, that how you yeah. So yeah, Synod. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. so tell us a little bit more. One of the things I'd like to do with this is get a little bit more acquainted. Um, you know, Mormons, especially me, um, like we just lump all Protestants together. We don't. I still don't really understand the difference between evangelical and non-evangelical, or just a regular run-of-the-mill Protestant. Um, but yeah, uh, and it's 
And, yeah. and Protestant's a big word, right? It's a broad term. Um, so, so a synod, uh, again, broadly speaking, is, is akin to a diocese. Uh, so a, a, a geographic territory for a church. Now for us, and in Lutheranism, at least in some of the groups like the Missouri Synod, that synod also refers to the church body as a whole. So our denomination is the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Um, because of our geographic location, we come to be called Missouri Synod, but we have churches all across uh, the United States, and historically we had churches outside of the United States, although uh, the desire was for them to form their own church bodies. So we eventually did you know, grant them independence and then fellowship. So uh, for us, uh, the Synod refers to the whole denomination, but for something like a denomination like the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, it might refer to a geographic diocese. So, yeah, that's the uh, short and very riveting answer. So there are kind of different... Um, what's the word? Uh, different groups of Lutherans, right? Because you're not Correct. an Evangelical Lutheran. An evangelical well, Lutheran would be an evangelical, right? Or is that not correct? Okay, no. See, this is where it gets tricky. So my congregation, for example, the full name is like, well, I won't give you the full legal name because we don't have enough time, but it's like Zion, it could be like Zion Evangelical Lutheran Church, or I was at St. Paul's Evangelical Lutheran Church. And so in Europe, uh, and originally the term evangelical essentially referred to those who held a Protestant doctrine. Um, if that makes sense. So those who would believe in justification by faith, for example. Um, by the time the 20th century rolls around, which, you know, our churches are going to predate that, evangelical then comes to mean uh, really more of an emphasis on, say, a born-again experience. So we would, we would say we are evangelical insofar as we embrace the evangel, that is to say the gospel, but uh, not evangelical insofar as we stress absolutely a born-again experience. Does that make sense? Yeah, so when I think So of, it's confusing. <laughs> yeah, when I think of evangelicals like Steve Pineacre and uh, Christopher Thomas, I'm thinking of more, um, and I don't mean this in a derogatory sense, but like the, the Holy Rollers, like you're doing a lot of clap and sure, a lot of singing, yeah. a lot of drums and rock band kind of music, um, you know, very yeah, lively so services. It, yeah, I think for all intents and purposes, the term evangelical has come to mean that for many people. Okay. The definition has moved. Um, yeah, we are more traditionally Protestant and probably at the same time more Catholic than a lot of Protestants. Uh, you know, most of our churches are liturgical. We have a very formal uh, form of worship. Um, a lot of our churches will tend to have historic church vestments so that um, a Reformed Protestant, uh, you know, someone with a more of a Calvinistic influence would see us as, as very, very Catholic. Uh, a Roman Catholic would look at our theology and see us as very, very Protestant. So uh, we can't please anybody, so we just do our own thing over here, I guess. <laughs> so you would have more... Um Mormon-like services. I shouldn't say boring, but <laughs> more, um, I don't think. Well, I uh, wouldn't consider not, it boring. You're not going to be clapping and, and you know hallelujah it's, and it's, praise Jesus during yeah, services, right? No, no, it, it is very reverent. But I, but I, but I do feel the need to say that. Um, yeah, a lot of people are going after that experiential uh, sort of uh, religion, and I, you, I, you can have that in some of our services, but we. 
we want to highlight in in our services that whether you feel it or not that the divine service, which is what we call you know uh, worship um, or our Sunday services rather, so divine service, the liturgy is it is God uh, coming to you, and then you're, you're of course speaking back to God, but. Those objective things that belong to you as a Christian are yours, whether you have that exuberant mountaintop experience that Sunday or not. That when the forgiveness of sins is announced, that it's yours whether you're feeling it that day or not, right? That the gospel preached to you is yours whether whether you really felt like coming to church that morning or not, but you came anyway. Um, so we're very uh, hesitant to let emotion uh, facilitate everything. I think that might be the, the best way I can describe it. And not that that's what the... I'm not trying to say that that's what the others are doing, but we're, we're sort of careful about that. Um, but but you can have emotions. You're allowed to do that mm-hmm. <laughs> in the Lutheran Church. You can, you know, you can, but we are... Uh, we tend to be, uh, whether that's cultural or not, it probably a little bit of it is, uh, rather stoic. Yeah. Yeah, stoic is kind of how LDS services are too. So, and I will say, um, Episcopal services can be that way. Catholic services can be that way. Correct. And I, in yeah. some ways, I think Mormons would be more at home in a Lutheran service like you have, or a Catholic service, because we're, it's more it's more familiar to us than, hey, praise Jesus, Amen, you know that kind of a thing. So sure, yeah. But there's certainly lots of lots of different ways to worship. So. Well, um, I think I told you uh, back in the 90s, I, before I got married, I dated a, a Lutheran girl, and um, I, would, I would actually probably call her a girlfriend, and um, she used to invite me to Lutheran services, um, and uh, actually it wasn't really, we, I didn't go to church with her, but we, there was a Wednesday Bible study that I used to, to go to um, all the time, and I got to be really good friends with the pastor there. Um, and they had a video, <laughs> I wish I could remember the name of it, on Martin Luther, and it really reminded me of uh, Joseph Smith's first vision. Like, it was the same kind of filming, like, it looked the same, <laughs> and, and I was just like, wow, this is just like Joseph Smith. So yeah. you probably and, would, would call that a heretical thing that I just said. <laughs> <laughs> Well, but for those of so, us who aren't familiar with Martin Luther, and, and not Martin Luther King, but Martin Luther, the original Martin Luther, because uh, he was born on Halloween, right? No, no, no. Okay. Uh, so, but you're remembering your dates well, so you're ahead of the curve. Okay. Um, he was not born on Halloween. Um, on o- October 31st, 1517, he nails the 95 Theses oh. to the Wittenberg church door, thus uh kickstarting the protestant reformation because they the my girlfriend they didn't celebrate halloween they called it the marty party because it was martin oh Luther well King. i'm sorry that, Luther, she, she, that i'm sorry she was they called it such a cringe name <laughs> okay so here's what we have um we we follow most of the or a lot of uh, the historic church feast days so october 31st though is all hallows eve so all saints day is november 1st right but we also celebrate Reformation Day on October 31st, or we move it to the nearest Sunday. So you've got Reformation Day. We've never called it the Marty Party. I'd probably have to like hide my face or something if we did. Uh, but but um, Reformation Day, yeah. Um, and and the color, uh, curiously, on Reformation Day is red. Um, 
so we have liturgical colors that change throughout the year depending upon the feast day. And the red can either be the red of Pentecost, gospel coming down, whatever, or gospel going out, or red for the blood of the martyrs because uh, we do recognize that people were martyred uh, for being Protestant. Um, but yeah, so um, it just, because of October 31st, 1517, that is the day uh, that we celebrate um, the Reformation. And then the next day would be All Saints Day where we celebrate all of the faithful who have died. And, uh, and then, of course, we do believe that they are alive with God, uh, worshiping with us even even now. Well, because when I think of All Saints Day, obviously, I, they, that's, a, that's kind of a Catholic holiday. Um, are you, are you, would you say your worship services are very Catholic? Okay, um, so I believe that when I say yes, some, people, some Lutherans listening to this are going to go, no, and then if I say no, some Lutherans are going to go, no, because... To be fair, uh, we do have, uh, on one end of the spectrum, some happy, clappy-looking <laughs> Lutheran services, and then some very, very Catholic-looking ones. But even, I think, our middle-of-the-road services are going to look much more Catholic to the typical Protestant or the typical evangelical. Uh, we do follow the historic, a historic liturgy. Uh, so, yeah, I would say that um, we, we, we stand in the Catholic tradition of worship. And so... Um... Because I know, I know Catholics still are. Uh, this is where my my multilingual religious is going to get me in trouble. But um, do they call it canonizing saints? Uh, yes, yes. That's what I thought. Okay, so I, I got that right. Yeah. Uh, so you wouldn't follow like the newer saints. It would be the older saints before fifteen seventeen. Um, yes, but we don't believe in a canonization process. Uh, so we would take the, the name saint in a number of different ways. We believe that all true Christians are saints. And we believe that all of the faithful departed are saints. And yet we also recognize, um, so we don't have a problem, for example, referring to St. Augustine as St. Augustine. Uh, and we even have um, days where we would remember uh, particularly biblical saints, but also um extra people outside of the Bible, people throughout church history. And yes, we've even added our own. So C.F.W. Walther, uh, who was sort of our de facto founder in the United States, uh, we have a day commemorating him on our calendars, things like that. But, but we don't have a canonization process or anything like that. We believe that all Christians and all faithful departed are rightly called saints. Okay. Because they're made holy by God, I guess. I should, I should give you the theological justification there, Okay. And the Bible uses it that way, too. Okay. So, um, I know LDS, we, we refer to ourselves as Latter-day Saints. Would right. you refer to your congregants as saints as well? Or is that just special well, people well, we like St. Augustine as, or St. Clement or some as, people like that? As a theological concept, but we don't call each other saint. Uh, we would just refer to each other as, as Christians. Um, you know, Lutheran, even that name Lutheran, like we don't, that's a tricky one, too, because that's a name that gets applied to us. We actually kind of wanted to just... We, there's evidence that we wanted to be called evangelicals in the 1500s, uh, but we would also accept the term Catholic if we use it in the right sense, uh, as in the universal church where the church always believes. But uh, Lutheran just kind of got thrown at us as a pejorative. Kind of like stuff. Mormon, right? Correct, exactly <laughs> like that. All right. So can you tell us a little bit more about Luther? I think... Most Mormons, I'm going to still use the term, I don't care. Uh, most Mormons, most Latter-day Saints, we know about 
Luther's um, 95 Theses, but, but that's probably about it, other than, you know, he didn't like the Catholics, and yeah. we might know that, s some people might know that Luther didn't actually start the Lutheran Church. <laughs> he was yeah, kind so of a snuffer, is, uh... a Denver snuffer in that way, like, hey, I'm not starting <laughs> yeah, a church. Was... Yeah, yeah, uh, let me give you the Cliff Notes version here, I think that's important. Um, I do think that even the LDS recognized the importance of the Protestant Reformation, at least today. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know that all of our creeds are an abomination, but they still, they're kind of friendly toward us now. Uh, so... So Luther is a man with a very troubled conscience. Um, he is a monk. Uh, he he joins the monastery after a near lightning strike, makes a vow to Saint Anne that he'll become a monk. Uh, he's always a very tortured soul, wondering um, about assurance of salvation. Will he ever be good enough? So even as a monk, he is confessing more than he has to. He is even more ascetic than he needs to be. Um, they send Luther to Rome. And uh, and he uh, he doesn't like the corruption that he sees there. He comes back. Uh, he's you know he's a professor. He's a doctor at uh, the University at Wittenberg. He is a doctor of theology. Uh, he begins to seriously study the scriptures. And so I think your Joseph Smith moment that you're referring to in this documentary that you watched on Luther is probably this experience, where he's reading the Book of Romans, and it finally clicks in his head that the just will live by faith. And this really uh, is the linchpin of his theology, that uh, everything that we have from God um, is, is gift, uh, that it is received by faith, and that, yes, we can talk about good works and things a little bit down the road, but that everything we receive is grace upon grace. And so his conscience is able to be unburdened once that uh, clicks for him. And so it is a bit of a, a shining moment for him. It's an epiphany for him. Uh, no angels appear. Although later Luther, by some uh, preachers, will be referred to as the angel of revelation, but we won't get into that. Um, <laughs> but uh, so that is it. Uh, he and then he begins. You know, he's writing tracts. He's writing things that are getting him into trouble, and that's eventually going to um, to lead to his excommunication uh, from the Catholic Church. But there are all kinds of other things that are tied up in this. So you're you're dealing with the Holy Roman Empire. You're dealing with a Germany that is not united, and so you have all of these different. Uh, um, princes and fiefdoms, and so they're able to to choose their own religion, uh, and so he he comes about at just the right time to where a movement like this could spread. The printing press is there, and so his 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 writings are being disseminated uh, sort of far and wide. And what he is preaching is really clicking with um, with the peasant, uh, with the layman, with certain princes, but it's not really clicking with the pope. And with certain bishops, and that gets him into trouble. So, was his idea? I mean, is he kind of a Denver snuffer of his day with the Catholic Church? Uh, I don't I, see it, it, the context is so different because Luther um, is not a visionary, and later he is really going to write a very strong polemic against those who are claiming divine revelation. Hmm. So he, so he wants to be very clear that what he is teaching is in accord with Scripture and in accord with even the Church Fathers. So he wants to be very careful that, that we're not teaching anything novel, that there's not a disconnect, that what has happened is corruption has entered into the Church to where you know, you can buy an indulgence and that erases your sin. Now that's a very you know, sort of reductionistic way of explaining this, but that is how a lot of people understood this. So the 95 Theses, the, sort of the first blast here, have a lot to do with the sale of indulgences. Um, can I 
buy something or can I perform a certain action and receive certain uh, a certain um, bit of alleviation for my time in purgatory? Or can I do that uh, for the souls in purgatory, for those who have died? Uh, these are the sorts of things that Luther is reacting against. Uh, and so he, he doesn't like the abuses that he sees. Um, but he's, he's like a Denver snuffer in this way, that he doesn't intend to separate from the church, but they make that decision for him. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I can see yeah. some similarities there. So, But yeah, Denver's definitely much more of a visionary than Luther, it sounds like. Yeah, and you know, the, it's interesting when I see these guys, um, you know, your, your history is interesting because, you know, when you have the great apostasy, you're not really looking at the rest of church history, but yet you still have great debates just on what amounts to about 20 years in the 19th century. And I find that very interesting. Um, you know, was Joseph a polygamist or not? And that's one of Snuffer's big things. Um, you know, who is the rightful successor? And down to this day, you have competing competing visionaries. Well, and can you talk a little bit more about it? Because Luther, I know he made a big deal about he didn't really want to start a church. And I don't believe one started in his lifetime. Is that correct? That it was after yeah, he died? I mean, we, yeah, we don't, yeah, it, it's not really, um, you know, if you think about the church, and this is, again, Cliff's Notes version, you have a united church until 1054 with the Great Schism. Right. Uh, with the, the and Eastern Orthodox you, and the Roman Catholic you're talking about. Correct, correct. And that's over the, largely over, you know, the primacy of the Pope. Um, and then you get to the Protestant Reformation, uh, where then there is, you know, there's there's the Lutheran branch of the Reformation, uh, which, you know, all but at the same time you have the Calvinists that are going to come up and all the other iterations that come up, you know, relatively quickly. But Luther was not intending to start anything called a Lutheran church. Uh, he he wanted to reform the church. Uh, it's not a restoration; it is it is a reform. You could call it a rediscovery of certain truths. But you know, Luther would have been happy to to live under the Pope if the Pope would have. Um, you know, not insisted that he was the vicar of Christ, would not have insisted that he alone had the keys um, over purgatory, for example, things like that, which which purgatory is a doctrine that, that we do not hold to, for example. But but we still believe, for instance, in, in, the, in the doctrine of the keys, the office of the keys, the binding and loosing of sins, things like that. We believe in confession. We believe that when the called and ordained um, pastors absolve sins, they are forgiven which would separate us from most other Protestants, for example. So we, we are very much um, still in the Catholic stream in regards to a lot of things, uh, but we are not a uh, Roman Catholic. And so if you ask certain Lutherans, and there is some truth to this, they would say, no, by excommunicating Luther, essentially by affirming what happens at the Council of Trent, the Catholics have excommunicated themselves from the Universal Church. So it kind of depends on who you ask. <laughs> That kind of sounds like what Denver says. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, what did I say before? Nothing new under the sun, right? <laughs> so, wow, that's interesting. So, of course, this is one of those arguments that I feel like I have to address that kind of drives me crazy, um, is the whole grace versus works, um, you know, uh, but I would love I would love to have you comment on um, I believe it's in Second Nephi where um, it says uh, in the Book of Mormon it says 
we're saved by grace after all we can do. After, after all that we can do, yeah. And so um, you would probably still find that pretty heretical, right? Yeah, and, and I will say, um, for the audience's sake, and especially if they're watching this on video, we had originally tried to record this in my office where I have all my books. Ah. And, uh, and I ran off... Um, I ran off and don't have my quad with me because I wanted to have it for this. But oh, bummer! Uh, <laughs> bummer. But I've got you know, I've got enough. Maybe I know enough up here. Um, if if I say that I know enough of the Book of Mormon in my head, my listeners will get very nervous. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, I think that um, I've I've looked into this uh, quite a bit, really, with with how the Mormons understand that, and I get a bunch of different answers. <laughs> so Bob Millet. Or Millet, or however I'm supposed to say yeah, it. Millet, uh, so I would say, yeah, Millet. Yeah, he he gives uh, he gives a little bit of a different answer than like a Brad Wilcox or somebody like that. I I do I do think the trend in Mormonism is le- is leaning more toward the grace side. Uh, but we would believe that um, that everything is grace. Uh, so, and you'll you'll kind of see me pulling up some stuff di- uh, digitally uh, because I don't have my I don't have my uh, I don't have my books in front of me, uh, and I wanted to kind of. Talk to your audience a little bit. So the the small catechism is uh, kind of our basic uh, teaching document. Oh, you might have it right there, yeah. No, um, by the way, and I should say, you were kind enough to send me this as well as this uh, Bible, English Standard Version. You can't see it very well, but that's what it is. And, yeah. oh, my Book of Mormon here. So, you're a great listener. <laughs> so, well. so anyway, uh, go ahead. Yeah. Luther's Catechism. Right. Well, I'm still waiting on a restock of uh, Gospel Tangents uh, coffee mugs. <laughs> I'll have um, to get you one. <laughs> so, so for example, uh, in the in the uh, the small catechism, we talk about the third article of the Apostles' Creed, which is, "I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, resurrection of the body, and life everlasting." And then in our explanation, it is, I believe that I cannot, by my own reason or strength, believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him. But the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, sanctified and kept me in the one true faith. In the same way he calls, gathers, enlightens, and sanctifies the whole Christian church on earth and keeps it in Jesus Christ in the one true faith. So on and so forth. So that we believe that from first to last, it is grace upon grace. That God has to call us first. Um... And God does the work in our hearts to uh, to justify us. Um, we do believe that people can reject that, of course. That people will have true saving faith and then fall away. So you're, all your Calvinist listeners have now um, anathematized me uh, for that. Uh, but we we so with that Nephi verse, we would take issue with after all that we could do because we don't believe that uh, first <laughs> a priori uh, that we can do anything. Uh, we believe um, that man is dead in his trespasses and sins, and so that the Holy Spirit must first work on him before that before man can believe in him. And God does that in different ways. Yeah, and I, I'm not here to debate ways. that, but I, I want to get no, it. No, 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 it's fine. Because um, there's the one scripture in James that I believe Luther said, and, you probably, and I, I wish I could have it off the top of my head. Um, Luther said was un, the, the book of James was uninspired. Do you know what I'm referring He's to? Si- he refers to it as an epistle of straw, and but I must say, and, and this is uh, the the caveat we always have to get. We um, are called Lutheran, but we don't subscribe to everything Luther said. His works are not canonized; only the the script, only the Bible is is canonized for us. Uh, the the Protestant canon, 
Um, but a lot of his writings as a pastor in the Missouri Synod, I uh, do have to subscribe to without error. Uh, so to be fair, but that doesn't include everything he wrote. Uh, this And everything I said is true for all of our congregations and pastors. So, uh, But that in James is uh, faith without works is dead is probably what there you're thinking. Go. That's what I was thinking of. Yeah, and of course James does also say that um, a man is justified by uh, not by faith alone. James does say that. So a bit of a sticky wicket for us, right? And that's kind of the gotcha that people usually use for us. Mm-hmm. Um, but we would typically explain it in two ways. Uh, the first, the most common way, is that, oh, James is talking about external righteousness. Um, and that's that's what most Protestants would say. Um, but there's also the fact that if you have true faith, um, good works are naturally produced. And Luther is reacting to a time where people are you know, really seeing salvation as purely transactional. Have I done enough? Did I pay enough? Have I gone to enough masses or, or this or that? Um, and so there is a bit of a problem even today where if you're looking for your assurance of faith in, like, am I bearing enough fruit, you're going to despair pretty easily, I think. Um, but we would we would wholeheartedly agree uh, that uh, man, that, that true saving faith produces works. And so that if you say you have faith, but you are living a completely um, wicked lifestyle. And I don't mean like, oh, you're smoking cigarettes and saying cuss words, but <laughs> you're completely denying uh, Christ uh, with your life, uh, that, that, would, that the person would be on very shaky ground spiritually. And I, and I fully admit that um, people can go from one extreme or another on this. But, and I know that this is one that Mormons bring out a lot too, that man is justified you know, not by faith alone. But again, James is speaking to people who say they have faith, but their lives do not demonstrate that in any way. And that would be a problem for us, too. I mean, kind of my my personal theology, I'll say it that way, um, <laughs> is the whole grace works argument are just kind of two sides of the same coin. <laughs> you okay. know, like, yeah. I mean, I would, I would probably subscribe to yes... Um, It, correct me if I'm wrong. The Lutheran frame of mind is that um, because of grace, you're going to have good works. And maybe the LDS um, frame of mind is, I have good works, which shows I have faith. And to me, we're really, yeah. you know, it's a kind of a chicken or the egg. <laughs> you know, which came first, yeah. the chicken or the egg? I mean, it's, to me, there are, we're basically, it's a stupid argument. Like, we're arguing the same thing. It's just semantics. Yeah, I mean, and I mean to be fair, I think too, um, you know, you, you all too have a very, uh, I would say, a stricter system of accountability in the LDS Church. A stricter, so, say that again. Uh, a stricter um, system of accountability. Oh yes, I'll say. Um, while it is true that our churches historically, especially in America, I mean, even well into the 1900s, would post all of the giving records of the members publicly. On the church bulletin board, oh. <laughs> uh, we we don't we don't do that anymore. Uh, we don't really check tithing. That records, sounds very Catholic. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that, uh, we are a, li- a bit more relaxed in that uh, these days. Um, you know, I think um, for a lot of Christians, sometimes they look at us uh, as a little bit impious because a lot of our people will drink alcohol, for example. Um, you know, smoking uh, cigars, tobacco, that thing's common. 
Um, and so people associate piety only with those things or abstaining from those things. And I'm not talking about Mormons. I mean, if a Baptist saw that, they would be possibly scandalized <laughs> too. Um, but I believe that, you know, now there's a problem using those things to excess. Don't get me wrong. But I think sometimes we forget that the that the true fruits of the Spirit are things like charity, love, kindness, patience, those sorts of things. Yeah. Well, and I remember my... Uh my girlfriend's uh, Lutheran pastor would invite me out for beer, and I'd be like, "I'll come yeah. along, but I'm not going to drink." <laughs> did did, uh, did did he know you were Mormon? Absolutely. <laughs> he, he he was he was he was testing you. So, he wanted to show you uh, how much he relied on grace. He was, he, it was a, it was like a reverse meat sacrifice to idols thing for him. <laughs> Yeah, that was fun. But yeah, it, it's definitely, you know, from, from an LDS point of view, it was like, wow, he pastor drinks beer? Wow, that's weird. But yeah, so um, now you mentioned something that I think many, um, many LDS really struggle with, um, and that's Calvinism. And I think, mm-hmm. and we've talked about Arminianism. Can you first define what those two terms mean, and sure. are Lutherans Calvinist or Arminian? <laughs> well, the Arminians say we're Calvinists, and the Calvinists say we're Arminians. So, oh, that's interesting. Uh, and and we say your your own your your own thing. Leave us alone. Um, so, all right. Uh, now, this is an interesting one for me because I was not a Christian. I wasn't raised, you know, in in the faith. Um, you know the the family I had who were Christians belonged to Holiness churches, so I can speak Chris Thomas's language too. Oh, nice! Uh, but but when I am converted, I really cut my theological teeth actually in a Calvinist church. Um, but you know, eventually became Lutheran. I mean, I'm a Lutheran pastor now, and all of that. So a Calvinist um, is what we would call uh, Reformed. Okay, so re- when you see Reformed theology, this is what they're going to say now. Um, the hallmark of that is the five points of Calvinism. And so they believe that man is totally depraved, so he is extremely sinful, uh, will not make a positive spiritual move on his own. They believe in the unconditional election to salvation and uh, something of ordination to damnation. They believe that the atonement of Christ uh, is limited only to those chosen for salvation. They believe in irresistible grace that all of those who accept that all those who are called by the gospel will accept it and will never fall away, um, and that would be the last point: the perseverance of the saints that they would not fall away. Um, Arminians sort of so reverse let me all just those points. Back up there for a second. Yeah. So a Calvinist is once saved, always saved. In a way, yeah. Uh, some of them would object to that, but I mean, on the way they say it is: look, it, if you have true faith, you will ultimately be saved because God has chosen you to be saved. And so if a person falls away, they never had true faith? That's what, yeah, that's essentially what they would say. Okay. Yeah. Um, Arminians are pretty much uh, the opposite of that. I mean, they would kind of believe in that first point, but they believe that God would give, everyone is born depraved, but God gives everyone enough grace that they could choose to respond or not respond. But they don't believe in uh, election. They They believe that the atonement is universal, they believe that grace is resistible and the perseverance of the saints is not true. Uh, Lutherans, um, and I'm speaking for uh, you know my branch of Lutheranism, 
you know, what we would call confessional Lutheranism that holds um, to a very strict subscription to a, a book of ten documents called the Book of Concord. So uh, we hold them because we believe they're a clear exposition of Scripture. Okay, there's my necessary boilerplate. Uh, so we do believe that man is born sinful and cannot uh, respond to God by nature, that God must work in him. We do believe um, that God uh, elects people to salvation but not to damnation, that the gospel is freely offered to everyone, uh, that some people will come to saving faith and will lose it. Uh, they will they will turn away from it, so they will not persevere. And we 100% believe that Jesus Christ's atonement covers everyone. That God had, or that, uh, that well, that God, yeah, Christ is God has died for all, and uh, and that there and that His blood covers everyone. And the election debate is a really long controversy in Lutheranism, so I won't bore you with those details, uh, because the debate boils down to, well, does God elect them? just of his free choice, or does he look down through the corridors of time and see if they would have faith or not and then choose them? So that's the theological debate there. And I realize that uh, Mormons agree with basically none of those points except maybe the atonement and the falling away. (laughs) (laughs) So, and and I think, just just to put this kind of in a nutshell, and maybe this is oversimplifying it, but hopefully it helps to clarify. So, the Calvinists are once saved, all the sa- always saved, and the Arminians are. Uh, you can fall away even after you're saved. Is that is that a fair statement? Yes, that's okay. yeah correct. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we we would believe that someone could have true faith and then and then lose that faith. And so then, so Lutherans are Arminian or Calvinist? We are neither. Neither. So you're like yeah, Mormons we, then. Yeah, well, that's the soundbite, right? That's, that's, what gets, that's what gets pulled out of this episode for my heresy trial. Um, yeah, uh, we, we would consider us uh, neither. Uh, we would have problems with each. And, um, you know, beyond, so that's just this, that's just part of the soteriology. You know, uh, sacramentally, we're quite different from both groups in the main. Um, because we believe that God uh, works through means, which they both would agree that God works, say, through preaching, and we would too. But we also believe in other means of grace, like baptism, the Lord's Supper, confession, and absolution. We believe that God works through these things as well. And a lot of them would would disagree. We believe that baptism regenerates, for example. We believe that the Lord's Supper forgives sins. Oh, so the how... would say that the baptism washes away your sins, but you're saying it's the, the communion? Well, I think... No, no, no. Okay, so... Well, yes, but hold on. Um, we are saying that both do that. Uh, so that baptism washes away sins, and I, I said regenerates, but we're saying the same thing. We both believe okay. baptism is a new is a new birth, and uh, I, I think I'm correct in that, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, so baptism does that, and yet um, I don't know about you, but I do sin every day. Uh, so not me. Uh, we've <laughs> right. Well, you know, word of wisdom, right? You're, you're keeping it. So. <laughs> Which, by the way, I've gone this. We've gone almost forty minutes, and I've not mentioned postum or fry sauce yet. But I hope we can get to that. Uh, two, two of my favorite things. Uh, but uh, where was I? Oh, okay. Um, yes. Uh, so the Lord's Supper. Jesus says, um, "Take eat. This is my body. This is my blood, given to you for the remission of sins." So that we we believe that the Lord's Supper is also for the forgiveness of sins and the strengthening of faith. That God is continually forgiving our sins. 
uh, through the means that he has established, and, and the Holy Spirit is working through that continually uh, strengthening our faith. We believe that um, we need that, that food just as much as we need uh, the food we eat for the body. Okay. Um, another thing that I wanted to talk to you about was atonement theory. I've got a, an interview with the Paul Toscano. Um, he's yeah. definitely uh, not a mainstream LDS belief on, on atonement theories, but um, would you? There are five theories that I look at on the on the great uh, expert website Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to to run these by you and uh, see how where Lutheranism fits in. I think I know the answer, but I'll, I'll, so there's five basic ones: moral influence, ransom, satisfaction, penal substitution, and governmental. First of all, are you familiar with those five different? I'm familiar with with yeah most of them uh, yeah moral influence ransom Christus Victor satisfaction theory uh, you know governmental the governmental theory um, is basically just yeah uh, that's more of a Methodist thing I think but um, yeah okay. I'm familiar with most of them okay can you give us a, a brief very brief what what's moral influence what does that mean as far as atonement theory yeah moral influence is going to be uh that Jesus Christ uh, came about in order to bring about a positive change in humanity so um the moral change comes about through his teachings uh he's doing this to be a good example to us i mean yes of course Jesus is an example but i think that that really does, is an injustice to uh the atonement to say that it's just um that it's just an example um, okay. that it's just a very vivid example of taking up your cross i will say that while there is one theory that sort of dominates most of Protestant theology, I think as a Lutheran, there are aspects of most of these that we can embrace. Um, and, and so, yeah, um, so we've got, so uh, moral influence theory, uh, ransom theory would be another one. Um, that's a very early one. It's, it's the idea, um, okay, so Christ comes to die as a ransom uh, for the sins of the world. Uh, so the the question is, it's a, it's a ransom sacrifice, but the debate is, is the ransom paid to the devil, or is the ransom paid to God the Father? And you can kind of see a more traditional, penal view of the atonement coming out of that, right? Mm -hmm. That satisfaction need to be made, a payment need to be made. Um, so who is the payment made to? Is it God or the devil? That would be the... Uh, the the uh, the debate. Uh, so the idea is: so Adam and Eve fall. In their fall, they sell. Uh, they turn humanity over to the devil. So we have to give the devil something to, you know, as a ransom. Uh, that that would be problematic for me. But I think you, if you're if you're paying the ransom, which does have an Old Testament precedent to God, then it makes more sense. Um, I guess I'm just uncomfortable with paying anything to the devil. <laughs> <laughs> me too. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, okay, so Christus Victor. Um, some would say the Christus, and I don't know if I'm going off the same list of you. I'm just kind of going down yeah, through here. I think so. Uh, some would uh, Christus Victor would be a very popular one throughout the history of the church, and that is essentially that Christ dies to defeat the powers of sin, death, and the devil, and to free mankind from bondage. Um, and I, every Christian kind of has to to agree with this <laughs> to one degree or another. Um, that in in his death, um, that in his death he has conquered the devil. Uh, the devil is is very much uh, defeated now. 
uh, and that will be made clear very soon. And he has opened wide uh, the gates of heaven and knocked down the gates of hell and of the dead. And so Christ, um, you know, we believe that in the Apostles' Creed that Christ descended into hell, that Christ uh, descends uh, into hell, into the abode of the dead, uh, to declare victory over over the demons and uh, to uh, you know to inaugurate the kingdom of salvation. So that's very much part of the Christus Victor theory. Um, the satisfaction theory and the penal substitutionary theory I'll kind of uh, take together, uh, but the penal substitutionary one is uh, is basically the one where Christ is punished for the sins of the world, and uh, justice had to be made. Uh, that the law of God had to be perfectly fulfilled. Christ does that on our behalf. In doing so, then, uh, through his means, he is able to exchange his righteousness for our unrighteousness. So Christ takes upon our unrighteousness and atones for it, and in exchange gives us his righteousness. And the issue people have with the, with the satisfaction theory or the penal substitutionary theory is uh, they don't like the idea of Jesus being punished for sins that aren't his own, or for God punishing him. And I, and I realize that that's a difficult thing for people um, to understand, and I'm, and I'm sympathetic with that. I understand why people would see that as bad. But we also understand that Christ willingly does this, that this is a gracious act, and that, and that in that atonement theory, justice must be made, and righteousness must be fulfilled. I mean, Christ even set, himself says he must fulfill all righteousness. And so we need that. And, and so that is why Christ does it, uh, and he does it willingly. Uh, but I think the issue people have is that the Father is punishing him. It's kind of how they see it. And, yeah. I mean, do, is, that, is that your objection, that's, I would guess? That's my, <laughs> he already knew I have yeah. an objection on that one. <laughs> but yes, that's, yeah. that's true. Okay. We'll, yeah, we'll, we'll um, finish so, the summary yeah, and then, then we'll, we'll, we'll dive into the more details there. Yeah, so, so you have the government, the governmental theory, which is... Um, you know, similar to the penal substitutionary theory, uh, and really, I'm trying to really think about how it really differs here. Um, and that's, and I think it's mostly because Christ only dies for the church in a judicial way. It's something a little bit uh, strange here. Uh, so that's my very uh, insufficient summary of the of the uh, of the of the governmental theory. And then there's the scapegoat theory, which is. Um, I mean, very similar to ransom theory and penal substitutionary atonement. Right. The sins are laid upon the scapegoat, so the sins are laid upon Christ, and you know Christ takes them. The scapegoat stuff's also very interesting because of you know who the scapegoat goes out to, but we won't get into that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So thank you. That, that's a very nice nice summary. So um, so as far as how the Lutheran Church looks at it. Um, how, what what do you lean towards? I think that in most of our preaching, undoubtedly, penal substitutionary atonement dominates. However, Christus Victor is very uh, powerful too. Um, if you go and listen to my sermons, you'll see you know both of those. But I would probably argue that Christus Victor, um, that defeat of sin, death, and the devil, is really what is highlighted. Um, I do believe that's what the world needs to hear more uh, nowadays, uh, because. If I go and tell someone that you need to have your sins forgiven uh, and Christ has to suffer for it, we're dealing with people who have no concept of what sin even means. We have to do a very basic thing. And, okay, so what's the big deal? I sin. Well, sin is an enemy. Sin is something that destroys you. Uh, The devil is an enemy that is seeking only what is worse for you. Uh, The world, which is in bondage to sin, 
um, you know, to explain those things and then show how Christ breaks those chains, I think is very important. I think it's very powerful. I mean, it's biblical, so we need to we need to preach that um, that Christ has trampled all of his enemies, and that Christ has come to free you from those things. Not just free you from vices, again, but to free you from uh, that which is that which kills you, that which is sin, uh, that frees you from the curse that he is that he has destroyed that. So both of those two would, would come to dominate, but you'll you'll find some from a lot of the different theories pulled in. But those two would be the two dominant themes. And I guess my issue, because I think, in a lot of ways, uh, LDS are very sim- would have similar beliefs with what you just said, kind of Christus Victor and penal substitution. Um, yeah. The the scripture does bring to my mind: Can can mercy rob justice? You know, there's a there's a big theological case in the Book of Mormon about that, which really seems to be kind of penal substitution. You know, every time I ask a theologian like you or Chris Thomas or Paul Toscano, um, they kind of shy away from what is what is atonement theology in the Book of Mormon, uh, and maybe that's this is just my obsession well, with it. But I, I mean, just I, I think, don't like I penal the... substitution. I I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, if you receive the benefits of it, you'd like it. But. Well, yeah. But, but I guess I mean, I, my I issue is, why does Jesus, right. why does God have to punish Jesus, um, you yeah. know, for my sins? Well, and like, then, and what what too, did Jesus you know, do to him? Yeah. What, what did, you know, Jesus... Well, what is, what is any sacrificial lamb in the Old Testament? What is a, a turtle dove? What, is, what do they do? I think uh, it's barbaric. Of... It's awful. I hate it. <laughs> I think it's Stone Age thinking. Well, yeah, but but I would be you know I would caution with that thinking because it, it was instituted by God, and um, now you might disagree with that. Well, see, uh, I would argue with that is is that I don't I don't think mankind understands God very well, and man probably misinterpreted what God really wanted. That would be my my thing. And then God right, let but, it go, yeah. You know? yeah, but see, that that would be the presupposition there. Um, but I would presuppose that the scriptures are are um, that they say what they mean and that they're that they're accurate and inerrant. And I don't mean to say I'm not trying to put words in your mouth or or anything like that. But I mean, the scriptures present this as God setting up this system. Uh, we also believe that all of the Old Testament system is a type of Christ. So that yeah yeah you know Christ does appear in the Old Testament in these theophanies, but everything uh, points and testifies to Christ. So all the whole temple system for us is pointing toward that great and final sacrifice of Christ, and so it is meant to point us toward that. Um, I think that part of the severity of the sacrifices is meant to show us just how serious sin is. The wages of sin is death. And so that as we stray further from God, this is meant to, to show us you know, just what that means. So if we can look at it as God is teaching us, and, and you, can, you, know, you can say teaching, teaching, teaching us through the lens of culture if you want, but if God is actually teaching us through that um, and is ultimately going to bring about good, um, then, then there is a purpose behind it. Um, it's, it's, it's kind of like any, anything that's difficult or what we would see as barbaric um, God doesn't permit it, and certainly doesn't establish it without a uh, a much higher purpose. I mean, I just look at the whole Old Testament, 
Yeah. <laughs> I, I hate to say this because it sounds blasphemous, but sometimes God's a jerk, you know? <laughs> I mean, um. <laughs> Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say he's a jerk. Sometimes God is uh, rather stern, <laughs> to put it lightly. You know, but, I, but wipe you know, out the um, whole village. You know, the walls come tumbling yeah. down. Everybody die. Kill all the cattle. Everything. Like, yeah, God. When God makes that's a point, not God's you know, love. But that, but that same God uh, saw his people through the wilderness, and that same God um, showed mercy to to many, to many. And that same God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has uh, now brought about the salvation of the entire world. So See, for all of the for all of that, you know, um, you know, it ultimately ends ends in mercy. The same god flew a couple of planes into the World Trade Center though, right? No, uh, mean, two uh two two you, pilots. You can did take it, unless, it that that way and people do. That's that's my issue is yeah, yeah. that god's a jerk. You know, I don't I don't want to worship that god who who, you know, or or if we sure. if we take it in a Mormon context, you know, God came to the Lafferty brothers mm-hmm. and said, "Hey, you got to kill Brenda Lafferty and her daughter or the baby. I don't remember if it was a boy or a girl." Right, um, right, yeah. That um, God, I don't heaven, like that right. guy. He's a jerk. Uh, I, I would right, rather, but, but, but I, I literally would, would that, rather go to hell if that's what God right. required of me. But here's the thing. Um, but just because someone says that, I mean, because we're dealing with two different things now. So the scripture which attributes things directly to God to supposed revelations where people are doing it in the name of God. And that's the rub. Who has who has the right voice? By what standard? And that's where the rub is. I, well, I, neither you or I believe that God told the Lafferty brothers to kill that woman and her baby. Right. I don't think so. Anyway. And I don't think um, that he told those Muslims to fly into the World Trade Center. Of course not. But no, I question no, no. whether God said, yeah, walk around Jericho seven times and kill everybody there. Right, but I, I but, question that God. Yeah. I, I, you know, I know that's the yeah. biblical interpretation and the standard traditional sure. thing. I understand that, yeah. but to me, that is just a, a the same bad projection as as the Muslims who flew into the World Trade Center. Right, but God does predict a lot of this that, that people would say this, and His answer is basically is essentially, "I'm God," and. Uh, don't question me, um, but See, at the same time, you're. <laughs> but it's not satisfactory, right? No, it's, it's not like at a all. lot of people. <laughs> because and well, it, I mean, here's the thing: Joseph Smith can say, yeah. "I believe God told me to practice polygamy," and I, I'm pretty sure you would say, I, "I don't think that was a true revelation of God." And I and I have a big question about that. Um, well, see, yeah, and that's the tricky thing for you because I can sit here and say that, um, you know, I believe. That the scriptures are inspired and errant. I believe pretty much all the traditional things about, you know, I believe it happened, and I believe that God, you know, uh, told people to do this. And I'm going to wrestle with those difficulties when t- when dealing with people. How could God allow this? Um, from a bit of a different angle, now if, than someone who believes uh, in continuing revelation, because you're dealing with it in a live way, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, I'm looking back at the historical record, and you're you have to deal with it in. I mean, you would have an issue with polygamy, but you would also believe that Joseph Smith is a prophet, correct? Yeah, but I can name a lot of bad things a lot of biblical prophets did that were awful. Uh, Abraham, number uh, and, one. And, right. I, I got lots of problems with Abraham. Right, but that's the apologetic there. Um, you know, I think that the, the real issue, you know, if we want to talk about prophecy, would be do these prophecies come to pass more than the moral character? Because if we're looking at people's moral character in the Bible, outside of Jesus Christ, nobody comes out clean. Right, um, and so uh, 
the, uh, the you know so yeah I mean you have, but, you were going to struggle with these in a different way like Mountain Meadow well that's kind of a different one because there's debate on that right yeah there's there's really no debate among the LDS that among official LDS that Joseph Smith practiced polygamy oh that um, he practiced it absolutely right and so that if you and then and then you have to right. wrestle with that right because it's in Revelations and Doctrine and Covenants. Mm-hmm. So, but I so mean, I can still look inspired. at the Bible. You know, if if I put my Bill Maher hat on and say, "Well, look, the Bible <laughs> it regulates yeah. slavery," and and you know, right. Lot slept with his daughter, and Noah got drunk, and and you sure. know, uh, what's his name? The guy who got swallowed by the shark, um, Jonah. Jonah, or I guess it was a big fish. I shouldn't say shark. <laughs> <laughs> um, but. Um, you know, Jonah was a racist. <laughs> you know, well, Abraham you, well, Abraham threw his polygamous wife and kid out to die in the desert. But God you know? God provides for them in the desert. You, you don't forget God provides for them. But but what uh, kind of a Christian? And I know it's not Christian, but what kind of a Christian is Abraham to to treat to mistreat somebody so badly? You know. And, so, and and Jacob steals the birthright from Esau, and I mean, there's so yeah, much, oh, there's so much dysfunction there in, is, yeah, and that's, in the that's Bible good news that, I, for, that I'm saying, hey, Joseph yeah. Smith's not that different. But that's good news for you and me because um, if if so great a sinners like them can be redeemed, and if God can bring about the Savior of the world through their lineage, I mean, this is what God works with. God is working through sinful people. And, and it's very ugly, and history is ugly. And God is working beautiful things even through the ugliness. And that's what we have to look through. I mean, if we, we can choose to look around the world today, and I think the, the racist stuff and the slavery stuff is, is a bit conditioned too by, um, by the time in which we live. I mean, Paul himself says all Cretans are liars. But if I said all people from Ohio are liars, I would probably get in some mild trouble for that, right? For all people, you know... So there are, so there are, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, uh, the, the, the language, I'm, I'm a bit careful with sort of language policing on stuff because there's a lot of loaded terms there, but the ancient world speaks much more harshly than we do. The 16th century people speak a lot more harshly than we do. And even look at the way that you've seen uh, Christians in the 19th century dialogue. It's, it's a lot more pointed than it would be today. But, so we've got a, a bit of a cultural softening as far as our discourse. But go back through all of these dark things in the scriptures, and you do find God uh, working in and through them. And that, that, to me, is something we have to see, that God is, we, God's not working through perfect people. God is working to bring about the salvation of the world through a sinful mass, and he works good out of it. And, and that's a beautiful thing. Well, um, I like that Jesus thought. Is, I, it's just, I, I feel like um, when talking with Protestants in particular, you know, they can look at Joseph Smith's polygamy as this horrible thing, and, and the Danites is this horrible thing. And I'm like, have you read the Bible? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you the know? Danites. Have you really um, read the Bible? You know, the you know the the Navu Legion, the Danites. Those things are a little bit tricky for me because, um, you know, I choose to read that record. A lot of the Danites are different. We can talk about those separately. But, you know, Joseph Smith. The early Mormons are portrayed as some kind of conquering military force. But a lot of that is built up in reaction to persecution. And if we're being fair, and I think I talk about this in the episodes, uh, regardless of where you fall theologically, um, you know, they were. 
they were treated rather violently at the, by some people. And so we don't want to condone that. Um, you know, I was trying to find some sort of uh, some Lutheran 19th century responses to Mormonism, and I could really find very little. But I did find some in some German records, and it basically, the discussion was, um, and this comes from C.F.W. Walther again, uh, could the state in America ever regulate religion? And he says, generally no, but in certain circumstances. And he says, the Mormons, for example, the, the Missouri government was right to route them out for their thievery, or maybe said the Illinois government, but so he, so he basically understood them as thieves, and so because they're thieves, what happened to them was justified. And I don't know. I don't. Do we have proof that that um, you know Mormons were were going into villages and and stealing? Were we were we putting gypsy stereotypes on them? Was that a reference to the you know to the Kirtland Safety Society? I don't know. But um, you know you can you can justify a lot of violence against people by turning them into um, an enemy like that. And so a lot of the militia stuff is is formed in response uh, to self-defense, which is something that that I would I could understand. You know, if we were under siege like that, um, and our churches had some kind of security, is that the worst thing in the world? And and I could be naive in viewing it that way, but I'll I'll plant my flag on that position for now, I guess. Well, and it's interesting. I, I, I'm curious if this is something you can speak to, um, especially because Luther obviously grew up in Germany. Um, so it's interesting yeah. that you're finding a lot of this German stuff. Uh, I think a lot of times we kind of forget that. But talk about, could, could you talk about how um, Lutherans, how, how did they interact with Catholics in Germany Especially so that they yeah. became kind of the dominant religion of Germany, because so, there was some persecution so, there for a while, at least. So again, at the time of the Reformation, Germany's not unified; it's a series of kingdoms, and so eventually the the princes are able to determine the religion. And this does lead in Europe to what's called the Thirty Years' War, where millions of people die. Uh, and so uh, through violent conflict, and I'm sorry, can you can you ask the question again just to make sure I get no, just everything? how how uh, Lutherans interacted with the Catholic Church in Germany, or yeah, what, okay, or what uh, we now so, call Germany. Uh, it's rather violent, yeah. uh, frankly, because so you do have the could, political. Is there a the parallel with the Mormons in 1840, 1838, Mormon War in Missouri with what happened in uh, the Thirty Years War? The, the war uh, the. <laughs> If there's a parallel, it's just that there's war, uh, because it is the official armies that are fighting uh, when the Lutherans and the Catholics are going at it. Except for when we teamed up to go after the Anabaptists together. Uh, but um, <laughs> uh, so there is. So let me give you an example then of difficult Lutheran history that people um, that Lutherans even struggle with, and this is tied directly to Luther. Uh, fairly early, or at a certain point in the Reformation, um, we we deal with visionaries and things like that, but the peasants start to take Luther's writings and see that as a justification to rise up against their masters. And so it leads to a very violent rebellion. Uh, so peasants are going around uh, revolting, rioting. It's very violent. Luther writes letters calling for um, the suppression of these riots. So he says, you know, basically send knights and soldiers to come in and destroy them. And tens of thousands of peasants are killed as a result of his advice. And so that is something that Lutheran, that certain Lutheran historians, and maybe a lot of Lutherans today that know the history, struggle with. That Luther uh, called for a violent suppression to that rebellion, 
and and you're talking about a scale in Europe that is beyond what really happens in uh, in America. I don't think right. America has ever seen a religious war with because I mean Hans Mill. How many people are, are killed there? Uh, Eighteen, I believe. Yeah, eighteen. And then the Utah Wars. Um, now that's not to say that you know that those lives didn't matter or anything, but uh, uh, the European scale, scale yeah. is huge, uh, and that and but that is in large part due to it being a political as well as a religious war. That, that they're fighting for control of territory. There is no separation of church and state at that point. Yeah, and to, to finish your thought on Mountain Meadows, uh, 100 people, give or take, you know. Right. I mean, do so. you, have, you, have you came down on one side or the other on that? On who did it? Uh, uh, yeah, on Mountain Meadows. Oh, yeah. Mormons. There's, uh, there's, I think yeah. there's no question. I mean, it's terrible. Um, having said that, um, you know, I, I remember at the time when I uh, was it with Barbara, I think it was Barbara Jones Brown that I, I mentioned that it was the worst massacre in U.S. history, mm-hmm. um, which is not correct. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, worst massacre of white people. Of white people, yeah, the Indians. Uh, but the yeah, Indians uh, had the the Bear River massacre was more than double that. It was like 250 people died. And, right. and uh, you know, the Mormons, we were kind of had an indirect role with that. Um, and that's terrible. But, but honestly, there have been so many Indian massacres that, uh, that white people just don't count because eh, they're Indians, you know. And God's, you know, manifest destiny. God's on our side. We're here to right. take over, you know. And the but, Book I mean, of Mormon has problems go, with that. And too, violence but. did go both ways on that end. I mean, conquering the frontier was not... Was not without. Uh, uh, the more I learned about yeah. the Indians, I mean, they were they were pretty badly mistreated. I, I, yeah, but I mean, if you look at, I think I think that's one too. If we're being objective, you look at it tribe by tribe. I mean, violence being committed. I mean, there's people are people are killing each other. Right is what's happening. Right, you know, is what I'm trying to say there. Yeah. Uh, that um, that the conquering of nations, whether it's America or anything, is always going to result in bloodshed and. That's not a. I'm not making a value judgment there. That's just. That's the that's the world we live in. That's the fallen. That's the ugly world that we were talking about that we live in. Yeah. You know. Yeah, but the idea was going back to the the difficult Lutheran history. So so Luther said some things that got people killed. Can we can we say it that way? Yeah, I think that that's um. Yeah, I mean that's. I mean, is it? He he calls for it and it happens, and. Uh, but he does believe that in their rebellion that they are um, that it is just that they would be put down. Luther would probably not have been a fan of the American Revolution or the American Civil War. Uh, he sees it as sin uh, to, to go up against your um, to go up against uh, what I want to say masters, and I'm using that in its historical sense. Uh, so we believe that uh, the uh, the commandment to honor thy father and thy mother applies not only to your parents but to uh, other authorities. Um, insofar as you're not called to violate the law of God. And he sees rebellion as violating God's law. Which is kind of curious, given that he's the father of the Protestant Reformation. But <laughs> but, but he would again say, though, that the Pope is uh, causing him to, uh, to disobey the Scriptures, to disobey the clear commands of Christ, uh, to deny the true gospel. So in that case, it's okay to disobey. And I mean, everybody agrees to that to one degree or another. Yeah, yeah. That there's a time where you, you can say no. Right. Well, cool. Um, i trying to remember what else we need to talk about. Um, do you have any questions for me? 
We haven't talked about uh, the well, word of wisdom. You know, I think that's your your thing, right? Yeah, let's let's. Well, I got one question, then we'll, we'll talk about word of wisdom. Um, so it was all the way back in atonement, and I didn't get to ask it. Uh, okay, this is something that's always confusing me. Now, when I read theology, um, you know, I like a good systematic, so I'll still pull out Mormon doctrine and to try to figure out, even though it's outdated. And I feel like sometimes maybe the the when the LDS uh, theologians today, I feel like they maybe soften or you know, kind of fudge a little bit on clearer statements. Um, so the atonement's always been interesting. So if you look at a lot of anti-Mormon tracts, they'll say that Mormons only believe the atonement happened in Gethsemane. But that doesn't seem to be uh, the case when I hear, like, say, back to Bruce McConkie. You look at Bruce McConkie's, what I'll, what I'll call it, the final testimony. Uh, he says, I testify that Christ, you know, atoned at Gethsemane and Golgotha. So... All the theories aside, where do you believe that the atonement happened? How does Gethsemane figure into that? I guess is my question because we don't we don't believe that it really happened, you know, at, at Gethsemane. When you're talking about the atonement, as far as the price that he paid for our sins, is that what you're saying? Yeah, it's it's typically pictured as Christ's atonement either happens or begins at Golgotha. Well, or excuse me, at, at, see, at Gethsemane. Where... Of course, it happened at Golgotha. <laughs> Or am I, or am I bumping this into folk where I, I just want to reject all the penal substitution and ransom theory <laughs> altogether because it's just to me it's so barbaric and awful. I would much rather talk about moral influence or, or um, Christus Victor. To me, those are much yeah. more appealing. Um, yeah. But uh, because I just feel like the LDS church is very tied to penal substitution and I, I, don't, I don't like it. <laughs> so to answer your question, what's the official thing, not what's my thing? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah um, the official thing, yeah, not the Benedite position. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm much more of a Christus Victor and a moral influencer view of atonement, and I like it. I like it way better, and so I, I hate this question. I'll, I'll just say, um, <laughs> but yeah, from the the uh, quote unquote official, um, I kind of, and I hate to say this because I, I disagree with Bruce R. McConkie a lot, but I kind of think he might be right on that one. Um, kind of a combination of on the cross and in the garden, um, you know, where where. <sighs> And to me, this is so barbaric. Once again, this is why I don't like penal substitution. That Jesus bled from every poor as he's praying in the garden. That's horrible. Like, what kind of a God would do that? <laughs> like, Jesus, yeah, they, here, well, I'm going to make you bleed I mean, from every poor because you got to pay for everybody's sins. I, I just I don't right. like it. Well, and, like then, it. and then, see, there's an ontological difference here with the way we view God, too. Because we, I mean, I'm, we're Trinitarian. We believe in one God. Uh, united, uh, three persons, same divine essence, you're dealing with two different beings of flesh and bone. And two different... Uh, and so I think that that colors that a little bit too. Um, that there's a potential, perhaps, in Mormon theology for a disagreement between the Father and the Son. Not that that's ever... that you officially teach that, but at least it's theoretically possible. Uh, but we believe that God is one, and you, you would have... Uh, I mean, the Father and the Son are not one. Maybe one in purpose, I understand that, but but not one in, in essence or being. Well, so, go ahead. Yeah. No, no, go ahead. So, you know, my my whole thing is, uh, and I'd love to get into a kind of a Trinity thing, because I think, 
I, I love the Godhead because it's, to me, it's so much more understandable than the Trinity. Um, and I think, I well, think you and well, I have yeah, talked but, about that Lutheran satire website, which is, I think is awesome, yeah. but to, that talks and, about uh, the Trinity. That guy is, he is one, he is part of our denomination, by the way. Yeah. So, so those, that's hilarious. Come on, Patrick. <laughs> yeah, well, at least, hey, you, took, you, you can take jokes well. So that's, I'm going to have good. to uh, see if I can get permission to show that because I think it's hilarious. Um, do, do you know who <laughs> – we'll talk yeah, after. Hans, I'll see if you can yeah, get me some, yeah. some permission to use that because I think it's so hilarious. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I don't think you'll, you'll have a problem using that. Oh, really? So, well, that would be cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure Hans will be fine with that. <laughs> um, so, the uh, yeah so because um, doesn't let yeah. me ask you this because I think Chris Chris Thomas said this um, and I would suspect Lutherans are the same as Pentecostals in this respect that don't most your average run of the mill Lutherans think of the Trinity as dualism. Um, okay, you're gonna have to define what you mean by dualism. Or mo- excuse me, modalism. Mo- modalism, modalism. Modalism. Yes. Okay. No. Okay. Now I, I'm gonna say no. Lutherans don't think of it as as uh, modalism. Uh, we're very big on catechesis. What happens is people are sloppy with their language, and I think a lot of people, because of that, are when they when they try to explain the Trinity, come across as modalists. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what he's saying, uh, and. I mean, you have what appears to me as modalism in the Book of Mormon, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, Paul Toscano Paul, could agree with you. I haven't published that yet, but it will probably be published yeah. before you see this. You'll yeah, have you, to check you can out my tell that the theological development of Mormonism hasn't happened at the time. Like to me, a lot of what's coming out of the Book of Mormon, it, it feels much more clo- closer to a traditional Christian position mm-hmm. than than what developed. Certainly by King Follett, right? Right. By, by the King Follett discourse, things are out there. Um, no, some people are very sloppy in their formulation of the Trinity. The Trinity is a mystery, and it's not a, a tight, logical thing like what people want to make it into. Um, it, it, Millet, uh, Dr. Millet does say it's hard to unite around a mystery. That's one of his um, defenses of Mormon uh, theology versus a traditional Christian, uh, a traditional Trinitarian theology. And I'm like, well, that's not really an argument, though. I, th- I think that, that God, yes, he is... He is above us. Um, We're not the same as him, and yet he does take on human flesh. God does become man. He suffers so that he can understand us. So there is a relatability there. God understands us much more than we can really understand him, but um, I'm getting out in the weeds here. Um, Yeah, so I'll give you an example. Uh, Sometimes people try to teach... uh, So modalism, for those that don't know, is the idea that God is sort of sometimes the Father. He'll manifest as the Son. He'll manifest as the Holy Ghost. He, he, he operates in modes, and we don't, uh, we don't believe that. So some people will say, oh, the Trinity is like steam, uh, or steam, water, and ice. Yeah, well, that's, that's modalism. modalism. That's, that's modalism. not the Trinity. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, an egg would, would fail, too, because that, be, that ends up being, I don't know, sort of tritheism, I guess. That might be closer to your position. Um, I mean, would, you would accept a tritheism, right? Uh, I'm not sure what you mean by tritheism. That there are more. Okay, well, in this case, you would God's say that an embryo, the is that what is, you're saying? <laughs> no, no. Well, uh, at one point, we believe he 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 was um, because because in the womb of the Virgin Mary, uh, there is God the Son, right? Mm-hmm. So he he is he is he is present there. But see, okay, this is Trinitarian theology. I keep keep going off on tangents here, but fitting for the name of the show. Exactly. Uh, so. 
Yeah, um, but you would believe that the Father and the Son are two separate gods. Two separate beings, and yes. Two separate beings, and the Holy Ghost We don't Ghost want to be well. too polytheistic so here. We, you know, and I know there was the whole... Yeah. In fact, I had a big <laughs> conversation with Paul Toscano about homoousius versus homoousius. Um, yes, okay, so Toscano, he's yeah, he's keeping up with the, with the classic debate. Well, he, he actually didn't know what the difference was. I had to explain. <laughs> I was surprised. Yeah, and... <laughs> Yeah, and that's tell what us the we difference talking. between homoousius and homoousius. Okay, because uh, <laughs> that was a big okay. debate in the early Christian church, right? Yes. Okay, so homoousius versus homoousius is uh, the the difference between um, uh, it's one it's literally one iota, right? Exactly. Uh, so. Okay, how do I explain this for people who have never uh, <laughs> who don't understand the Trinity? <laughs> yeah, let me. Um, so um, it's the question of is God of the same substance or of a similar substance? Uh-huh. So the Nicene affirmation is homoousius that God is of the same substance. Homoousius is that uh, the, or the Father and the Son would be of a like substance. Does that okay? Does that make sense? Okay, so, so the idea is homoousius, God and Jesus. This is why I hate the Trinity. Are the same? They're the same substance, right? And homo yeah. homoousius is God and Jesus are similar, but they're different. Is Correct. that right? Is that is that what the yeah. debate was? Yeah. So are they uh, identical? <laughs> yeah. Um, so we say in the Nicene Creed that they are of the same substance, not of a like substance. So that, for example, we would say that the God of the Old Testament is Jesus. Now you would say that too, uh, but in a different way. You would say that Jehovah is is the Jesus, the Old right? Yeah. The Old God, the Old, yeah. We would say that too, um, but in a different way because we believe there's one God. So that um, you know the, the pillar in the cloud in uh, in the Old Testament that's that's Christ. You know that's that's the same God. Uh, the, you know uh, so so that they are of the same substance. Uh, we believe that He is begotten, not made being of was substance with the Father by whom all things were made. So that he, he is, that the Son is eternally begotten of the Father, uh, but he is not a created being. And so whereas in Mormon theology, Jesus would be a created being. Right? You're going <laughs> to have to watch my Paul Toscano interview because he takes big issue with... Uh, the whole latter um, thing, theology. He says that's all wrong, but he's a heretic anyway. So I guess it doesn't matter what he says. But that's right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he. I mean, it's interesting. He has a different, a very interesting take on that. In fact, he's way more Adam God than I anticipated. So. Well, yeah. This is just kind of blowing my mind here because he's arguing like he's he's over here on a pseudo Trinitarian tract. Um, sort of pulling more toward traditional Christianity, but then he would go to Adam God. So what is going yeah. on with... with yeah. It'll be a you'll, fun interview. You'll have to watch that one for sure. It, it was very interesting. So, All right. Um, where else? We didn't, we didn't go back to the Word of Wisdom. Didn't you want to talk about Okay, that? so the Word of Wisdom, yeah. Um, you know, I'm sort of an accidental and a, a poor follower of it, not because I believe it's revelation, but it is a principle with a promise. Then it became a commandment. So let's talk about... So the Word of Wisdom for you all... Um, is an interesting one for me because it seems to me as it starts out as uh, good health advice and then it quickly becomes a commandment for 
the LDS for Latter-day Saints. Mm-hmm. And I had asked you, you know, anecdotally how it's observed in your country. I mean, you are in Mormon country. And you said that there was a bit of a generational gap. Well, and that's kind of what Jana Reese's book, or I don't know where that is. Um, where, yeah, so, I mean, typically, here's your kind of your little, there's a great article by BYU Studies, I don't have to find the name of it, um, that argued that, um, you know, in Joseph Smith's day, if, if they kind of wanted to throw the book at somebody, they'd say, hey, you're not following the word of wisdom. Kind of, and and the yeah. idea is kind of like the same way we do today, um, and the, the argument is that that even in Joseph Smith's day, they kind of follow, even though it was, um, what's the word? It was not by commandment. It was you know kind of a suggestion, and it wasn't it wasn't until Brigham Young said, okay, we've had thirty years now. It's a commandment. Okay, you've had your time. We're going to follow this. But even he. Yeah. There's still some tobacco, tobacco chewing going yeah. on in his day, right? and so well, it's um, in, and it's because if you believe the story where Joseph gets up and speaks about it, and then immediately lights up a cigarette and rides his horse through, or lights up a cigar and rides his horse through town, are you familiar with this? Um, uh, and I can't remember what it was a former it was a former apostle or someone at the time. Um, I mean, don't quote me; it might not have been an apostle, but uh, who who gives this account and says something like, "And you know, Joseph really tested the people's patience with that or something." I'm paraphrasing, but I'll. I'll think of it after the interview's over. But. Well, and I've heard that he had a bar in Nauvoo, and and I know that he drank wine the night before yeah. he died. Um, but but wine consumption's not. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. That's, that's okay, that's now, see, okay. I'm running into it. I mean, it it does seem that wine consumption and beer consumption uh, that prohibition comes later. Right. In the interpretation of the of the word of wisdom. Uh, I mean, of course, the great debate is over what hot drinks mean. But it, it's 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 interesting to me because okay, it ends up being. For a while, okay, just no caffeine, but then, hey, Pepsi's fine because the president drank it, and so those sorts of things. So, so what is the what's the big uh, franchise out in Utah? Swig, yeah, Swig. That's basically des- designer sodas, and to me, that's an interesting thing because I would imagine that some Mormons could argue that while it's not a direct violation of the word of wisdom, it is it is sort of in the spirit violating it. I don't know. Am I yeah. am I being a legalist? Am I being a legalist Mormon? <laughs> oh, there's lots of legalist Mormons out there, trust me. But uh-huh. um, So, yeah, as I understand the history of the word of wisdom, and there's a lot of weird different things. And it kind of the um, the commandment suggestion is kind of comes and goes as, as things yeah, go. But, but it wasn't until the 1900, early 1900s where they made it the temple recommended requirement. I know that there was a... Um, there's a picture of the Salt Lake Temple in the Celestial Room with spittoons in it. <laughs> yeah. So even well, in the okay, Utah so that, period, they were they yeah. were using tobacco. So we we have no prohibitions against tobacco alcohol, like I mentioned. I mean, even at seminary, every Friday there's beer and cigars and things like that. But um, you have to be careful, especially where I am. I'm in Baptist country. You know, I I choose nowadays to largely abstain from a lot of these things for various reasons, but. Uh, one, there, you know, it's it's just better for you. But uh, the um, there's, we have accounts of our churches in the 19th century having two different communion chalices, one for the tobacco chewers and one for those who didn't, oh. <laughs> and things like that. Because you guys still <laughs> so, use a single cup, right? We do. Uh, most of our churches would offer both um, individual cups and uh, and the common cup. Uh, my church offers both. I would say that my congregation is probably about fifty fifty. About half use it. The common cup and half even with COVID, cups. 
Even with COVID, we didn't take the we didn't take the cup away. Um, See, we we dumped you know, we dumped the yeah. single cup in uh, during the nineteen eighteen pandemic with the flu. Yeah, so we we, we kept on keeping now. on. Yeah, uh, we do use uh, curiously. We use the individual communion hosts, uh, but you would you wouldn't do that. Uh, so it, it's yeah, kind we of talked about what, that. What, That's probably something that I think a lot of Mormons don't know. Um, I I heard a conversation in my. I think it was my current ward. I didn't know this. Somebody who was gluten intolerant, and so they, they didn't want to have bread. And so they were getting these little, like, rice crackers things, and they would just put them on the tray. And yeah. then there was a discussion and said, no, we can't do that. Or if we do that, we have to break it because yeah. Jesus broke the bread. And so there's a... Mm -hmm. So we can still use, like, <laughs> rice cakes or whatever, um, but we have to break it. Um, and then so, sometimes they'll put it yeah. a little bit away from the bread so that the, so, the people who are gluten intolerant can have that. But So the, the big historical reason that we use the individual communion wafers is to avoid crumbs because we do believe that it is the true body of Jesus Christ and this true blood and the wine. Um, but, so this is like transubstantiation? Uh, a little bit, but we would formally reject transubstantiation because we believe it, it brings uh, too much rationality into it. It's trying to... Uh, bring a philosophical explanation into what is a mystery. Uh, but we do believe that it is Christ's true body and blood in the bread and wine, uh, so that it, you're truly receiving his body and his blood for the remission of sins. Uh, so, uh, but the breaking of the bread is an interesting one. So Calvinists, uh, churches begin to kind of compete with us in the European kingdoms, and then eventually the leaders are like, no, you're going to have to be one church, and this long debate. Well, the Calvinists said it's not the real Lord's Supper unless you break it. They said that it doesn't count as a valid uh, Lord's Supper unless you break it. And the Lutherans, not liking the Calvinists, said, "Well, we'll, we'll show you. We're not gonna, we're not gonna break it." So, so a lot of our churches to this day don't break it because we don't like the Calvinist position on the Lord's Supper. <laughs> and and so that is the debate known as the fractio panis, the breaking of the bread. Oh wow. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's another reason why uh, some of a few of our churches we to this day use white wine, and I think that that is because the real reason is because red wine stains the white linens e more easily. But there's also the Calvinists said, well, it needs to look like blood, or the Zwinglians, whoever, it needs to look like blood, you know. And we said, hey, no, it's not a symbol; it's real blood. We'll show you. So you know, a lot of practices develop uh, just to kind of as a jab at someone, which I kind of I can appreciate. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> so you know i think that's one thing that mormons are so persecuted that we just think everybody hates us but we don't understand that um protestants fight with each other just as much as they do mormons well so i'll give you an example you know we're we're here in arkansas we're lutheran uh we have worship where i wear weird clothing and uh you know very formal so very different from what a lot of these baptist churches will do so you know th there are people and members of you know tell me stories and things like well you know they're accusing us of war those lutherans they worship the devil in there and things like that. Or, you know, they'll say, oh, our small catechism, well, that's just like the Book of Mormon, you know, which we would vehemently disagree with, but they sort of see it as, we, you know, we, uh, they, they sort of see it as the same because we do do, we do things rather differently. Um, so, yeah, uh, Protestants will, yeah, we'll, we'll 
to varying degrees, will will demonize other Protestants. I mean, like we've talked about in private conversations, there are other Lutheran synods, for example, that won't even pray with people that they're not in what we would call altar and pulpit fellowship with. Uh, so that um, even other Lutherans, they wouldn't even like do a table prayer with or something like that. So it's funny you mentioned that. Um, I remember you, you told me, because uh, you've recently moved from Illinois to Arkansas, right? Correct, yeah. And so um, you, you had said two things that I thought were really funny and strange. Uh, well, one, every Mormon will uh, will every Mormon missionary in the South will will relate to this that you have never been damned so much as you, in your life as when you moved to Arkansas. <laughs> right, right, yeah. You bump into um, and, and you know this speaks for a lot of uh, areas uh, that are dominated by certain denominations. Uh, yeah, I mean. You know, and we're close to a metro, a metro area uh, in uh, Arkansas, but nevertheless, um, you know, even if they assume I'm a Catholic, that's no bueno. Um, and now, it, but it's also true of where I grew up um, in eastern Kentucky and Appalachia. You know, nobody knows what a Lutheran is. That sounds strange to them. Our worship's very now, different. Now, wait a minute. You just yeah. told me you grew up in Kentucky? Right. There, that is not a Kentucky accent you're speaking with. No, no, it's not. I can, but I can, I can bring it back. But we need subtitles for your. Uh... <laughs> so yeah, I grew up in. Uh, I mean, almost uh, to West Virginia, uh, very much wow. the Appalachian experience. But it was the same thing. Uh-huh. And uh, I told this story before. Of course, not on here. Uh, you know, my my grandmother. Uh, I can remember her. Um, it was kind of like, you know, uh, so my great uncle Augustus, you know, he moves to Ohio. That's strike one. Uh, opens a bar. That's strike two. Marries a Catholic. That's it. You know, no more. We can't, we can't handle that one. So, um, the denominational pre- uh, prejudices are different uh, depending on where you are. But yeah, down here, um, you know, you'll occasionally meet somebody, you know, who's accusing us of all manner of things. Uh, oh, you must be a cult. Do you worship Luther? Do you worship Martin Luther King? Is that what this is about? And See that's so, so weird to me, <laughs> <laughs> and and a lot of people to to be fair, a lot of people do know who we are, and the congregation has been here a long time. Um, but you still bump into people who don't who don't understand and, and don't know. Um, mm-hmm. And so, if well, we're you not even Baptist, told me that you were confused with being a Mormon. I was like, well, well, yeah, make well, any sense well, to me. yeah. They don't really confuse us so much as like, hey, you are a Mormon, but they say, are you like the Mormons? Uh, because you don't have, you know, your church says Lutheran on that. What does that mean? So usually, but once we explain it, they're like, okay, uh, you're just like us, but I'm still going to condemn you for, you know, infant baptism or whatever else. Uh, which the Book of Mormon does too. So so see, the Baptist yes. and the Book of Mormon can come after us. <laughs> so, you know, that's a great segue. I wanted to ask you, because Steve Pineacre had mentioned this one time uh, that he said, um, actually he said it a few times, that there's nothing, Christians should not be afraid of the Book of Mormon because it's a very Christian book. Um, do you do you agree with that statement? What, what are your thoughts on the Book um, of Mormon? So the audio cadet, just a little bit, he, uh, Steve Pineacre says that it's a, a great book. Is that what he said? Or No, he didn't, he didn't say it was a great book. He just said Christians shouldn't be afraid of it because there's not... Like, there's not oh, any strange yes, I, theology I remember, Yeah, and I think that this was um, the interview you did with him at Mormon Book Review, so check it out. Uh, right. Yeah, um, it is, to me, 
um, the Book of Mormon seems to reflect a lot of the Christianity that is developing at the time. Um, and I believe Alexander Campbell also says this, uh, you know, who's who probably writes one of the first, if not the first, review of it, negative review, uh, comprehensive one, <laughs> saying that it its problem is it answers too many of the theological questions of the time. Mm-hmm. And and I do think that the Book of Mormon very much speaks to that. Uh, and back to you know that infant baptism thing uh, and and other things. It's interesting the picture of worship you get through the Book of Mormon. I, the Book of Mormon is, as far as a story, is much more familiar to traditional Christianity than what develops. You know, I hate to keep mentioning the King Follett discourse, but he, but especially after everything becomes fully orbed after after Nauvoo, right? Um, but I mean, even the developments you have in Kirtland with temple work and things like that, you don't really see that in in the Book of Mormon. Uh, would you right. think? Would you say that's fair? Yeah, I mean, yeah, the. You know, a lot of times we talk about the, the and we have to be careful because they use the word endowment in Kirtland and Nauvoo, but it doesn't exactly mean the same thing. Right. Um, right. In Kirtland, the endowment is what we would now call a washing and anointing. I think a lot of Christians would be familiar with, you know, washing the feet and that sort of a thing. Um, and it's not exactly the same, but but it, it's it's along those those same kind of ideas. Well, yeah, I mean so, it's uh, so a lot of the what people consider sort of the hallmark Mormon doctrines are found in later revelations, um, right? You know, even things like um, you know, okay, so the vision of uh, Alvin uh, comes much later, right? That's not a Book of Mormon. It thing, was so. right after Kirtland, actually, I believe. Yeah. So it's it's post Book of Mormon. It's you know that that whole that that's what begins to develop your doctrine of salvation beyond the grave. Right. Uh, if I could, I don't know what you would technically call baptism it, but, for the dead. Well, probably. baptism for the dead, yeah. But but this yeah. idea that there's a whole salvation economy that happens in the spirit world or can happen in the spirit world. Mm-hmm. Um, so that happens at Kirtland. Um, now, are they doing baptisms for the dead in Kirtland? No, I believe it was, uh, the temple had already been built. Um, I believe, if my memory's right, I'd have to go back watch my Dr. Richard Bennett, my name twin, uh, right. interview because he's kind of an expert on that. And uh, I want to say it was round because there's no font in Kirtland, but I want to say that's when the first vision or the the vision of Alvin that you're referring to happened, and then it got further developed in Nauvoo, and Nauvoo's really where. Baptism for the Dead kind of was solidified. But I, I believe the first, I shouldn't keep saying first vision, the original vision about Alvin <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> was in um, was in Kirtland. Okay, yeah. So it becomes, you know, fully orbed there. Um, and I believe the RLDS said that early on they approved of Baptism for the Dead but never practiced it or something like that, I think is... Yeah, they included it in their original DNC. Um but they, yeah, I, I don't know if they never practiced it. But yeah, then they've, they've actually decanonized that revelation. Yeah, uh, which, so. and that's an interesting thing, which of course you've got hours and hours on the RLDS, or I should say more properly the Community of Christ. But um, very interesting, the really radical <laughs> departure that both the LDS and yeah. RLDS have taken. Uh, even yeah, though they get along right. better now, they seem to be further apart doctrinally than ever. <laughs> I agree with that. <laughs> so, 
You know, that brings up another point, um, because I think uh, the the same sort of issue has happened within the Lutheran Church. Don't you have some that are more progressive and some that are more... Oh, yeah, absolutely. For lack I of mean, a better term? Yeah, there are. Um, and I mean, um, certainly some people would consider the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod fundamentalist. Uh, a lot of our guys don't like that term, but I mean, we believe in biblical inerrancy, creation, virgin birth, all the miracles, so... You know, we pretty much hit that, hit all the all, all the marks there, um, as far as believing. You know, the miracles of the Bible and things like that. Uh, there are groups that would be further to the right um, than us that I mentioned. You know, that are very strict on prayer, prayer fellowship. Uh, we have probably, like most denominations, relaxed in some ways over time. Uh, you know, for example, it's not been that long ago that we considered all insurance to be sinful. You know, in the 19th century, oh, really? yeah, yeah. So that was considered sinful. Uh, we would have frowned on theater, dancing, things like that. Now, none of that is frowned upon at all. I mean, you're, you're going to have theater programs in our schools and dance classes and things like that. But that's more of a, you know, that, that those kind of things applied broadly to all traditional denominations at that time, except Mormons. They were always big into dancing. Yeah, uh, yeah I mean that, that is one interesting thing, you know. Uh, but then, then you would have the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, which comes about in the late '80s, which is a merger of several smaller denominations, which turns into one gargantuan denomination, uh, which they they would take a much more liberal or progressive uh, viewpoint of everything, for lack of a better term. So they probably don't have the quite the Lutheran distinctives that we do, uh, simply because they are a broader. I mean, they have they have a broader um, acceptance of different viewpoints and things like that. Would they accept gay marriage and that sort of thing? Oh yeah, hundred percent. I mean, they, they've been at the forefront of that. Uh, gay bishops, transgender bishops, uh, you know, so not just rank and file clergy, but even bishops um, in their denominations would be permitted to. But the the Missouri Synod would be against that. Correct. Right? We we do not approve of uh, you know homosexual. Uh, relationships, um, things like that, uh, yeah, we would be much more uh, in favor of traditional marriage and traditional uh, views of the family. And so, <laughs> this is where that term evangelical gets really kind of fuzzy. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Because your evangelical, because, <sighs> I'm trying to yeah. paint the hair a little bit. The and because the whole evangelical term is really fuzzy to me anyway, but my impression of evangelical Christianity would be against gay marriage, uh-huh. um, against female ordination. Correct. Whereas the evangelical Lutheran Church is the opposite of that. Yeah, correct. Right? And, but again, you're going back to this sort of older understanding of evangelical, right. uh, and so which would refer to you know how how one is justified before God. Now, uh, would they be similar in as far as music, as far as like rock music and, and uh, you, church? You would have all manner. You would have very uh, traditional uh, worship and then very contemporary worship, very high liturgical worship, and then very low church. Um, Within very stri- evangelical Lutheran? Correct, yeah. Oh, wow. So they're kind of all over the place. They're not correlated like Mormons are. Right. I mean, and, and, you know, you could, if depending on what district of ours you visited, I, I suppose you would find a, a great latitude as well as far as worship goes. Um, okay. And there has been an effort um, to recover some of the more traditional elements in the last, say, 40 years within our synod. Well, let's talk a little bit more about... Um 
biblical literalism or whatever. Um, so, how old's the earth? I'll just start out with that kind of question. <laughs> um, you're, you're asking, okay, so I'm not going to put an exact year on it, um, but if, if you're going to press me, I'm going to say that the earth isn't old. <laughs> so you're a young earth guy? I am a... Um, I it's would not leave, millions of years old? I would not... Uh, uh, not billions. Yeah, I would, I would tend toward God made a mature earth. And thousands of years old. Yeah, but but um, but again, this is also kind of what has historically been passed down to us as well. Uh, yeah, and I, I assume there would be so the evangelical Lutheran Church would they be more open to like evolution and those sort of things? Than yes, they would. Yes, Missouri? they would. And and I think that in a lot of Missouri circles, not necessarily with pastors, but in Missouri Synod circles, you're going to find people who affirm evolution, although we officially. Uh, deny evolution we also we would not officially put a date on the earth though uh, but i would i think most of your conservative leaning people would, in our synod would lean toward a young earth but i can't speak for everyone okay. and and again um you know just because we might have an official position doesn't mean that there aren't pastors who are teaching against that or uh certainly people in the pews who would who would resist okay but that's true like biblical yeah, biblical scholarship, like the documentary hypothesis, you know, you're never going to hear that in an LDS church meeting. you yeah. got to go to Gospel Tangents for that kind of conversation. Well, and I think even documentary hypothesis has largely fallen out of favor, even in the broad. I mean, even if you're not accepting the mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch, I don't think documentary hypothesis looms as large as it did. Uh, now, our synod did undergo a, uh, a period of conflict in the 60s and 70s. Uh, that resulted in a walkout at our one of our, at our seminary in St. Louis, uh, where the professors, for example, were denying uh, the historicity of the Bible, uh, traditional views about authorship, traditional views about the miracles. Um, and so the faculty of the seminary at that time would have leaned more toward a higher critical view of things. And, and so the synod uh, largely resisted that. Our synod president, who is the highest ecclesiastical officer that we have, um, he, you know, he he fought against that. Uh, the local congregations really rallied against that. And the way our form of government works is a little bit complicated to the outsider. But uh, really, because of lay involvement, um, the more traditional leaning side uh, of the debate ended up winning the day. And and really, that has colored our synod since then. But th- but there was a chance for us going the other way at one point. So you would say that Moses wrote all five books of Moses? Well, I mean, for the most part, uh, and, you know, Luther even kind of talks about this too. I mean, you you get a debate on this all the way back to Jerome. Uh, I mean, I'm fine with saying Joshua pinned, you know, the parts after Moses died. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Uh, (laughs) Because that's uh, the biggest problem, right? Yeah, and I think that if you look at it in a very reductionist way, you know, the case for Mosaic authorship is not as silly as it seems at first, because we can admit that, yeah, there you could have had some things added on, like especially by Joshua or whomever, because there is a piece, you know, after Moses dies. But in general, I would accept, uh, you know, what Jesus said. You know, Moses wrote this. So, I because I'm I'm thinking back to my Colby Townsend because one of his big issues was, um, and this kind of relates to the Book of Mormon, um, and I'm, I don't want to misquote him, and I might I might have this raw off a little bit, but. Um, 
you know, there's the, the story in the Book of Mormon where Lehi goes, or Laban, Laman and Lemuel and Nephi go back to get the, the plates, the, the Torah, basically, the Book of Moses, the five books yeah. of Moses. And um, I'm pretty sure, according to modern scholarship, that the Book of Deuteronomy specifically um, did not exist in 600 BC as the Book of Mormon claims. Um, and so there are some that would say, well, there were, there were no plates to get. Um, well, um, but, uh, so, okay. So I think I, you're going to, it's almost like you're trying to ninja me into defending Moses and in turn defending the truth of the book of Mormon. <laughs> no, not necessarily. <laughs> no, no. But um, I, I, I do want to relate it because to, to Mormonism. Um, yeah, but yes. Uh, yeah. Well, okay. So. It, um, you know, it depends on what part, you know, you're talking about, too. And, like, when does Moses actually write it down? And I think that that's where the scholarly debate is. Because some would say that it's an oral... If you take the documentary hypothesis, it becomes an oral history that is interpolated through different people, then finally mm-hmm. codified. Um, but, you know, depending on where you date Moses, you could you could certainly have it overlapping with uh, with the story in the Book of Mormon. This is an interesting. It's an interesting position you put me in. I kind of enjoy it because uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I kind of did that with Sandra Tanner. It was kind of fun too. Yeah. So. Well, and of course, too, when we talk about because <laughs> like, well, there's a difference, you know, because there's Torah, which means law, uh, you know, right. but law can mean there's a really broad use of the term law, right? Do, you know, are you talking when you say the law? Are you talking about the stone tablets with the Ten Commandments written on them? Are you talking about the whole of Torah? Uh, things like that. Uh, so, how are you using this? Are you talking, you know, uh, so that you know that's that's an interesting one uh, to talk about. But that's just a fact. I mean, nobody's going to disagree that law is used differently in both Old and New Testaments. Yeah. No, I guess my issue is, um, and 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 how it relates to the Book of Mormon is, and and, and this isn't really the doc. Well, it kind of is the documentary hypothesis. I got to go back and listen to that Colby interview again. It's just. A lot, a lot of information there, but the idea is that Deuteronomy specifically was really different than the other four books, mm-hmm. and that it was written well after. Oh, but yeah, BC. because yeah, because it's more complex. It's more spelled out. Uh, it's written. It even has a different tenor than than uh, Leviticus. But that's an assumption. Uh, I don't think that that proves anything. That that's a, a linguistic scholar looking at it and. Uh, saying, well, this seems different. It's similar uh, in the New Testament to who wrote Hebrews. And I, I don't know if the Mormon church has a position on this or not, uh, but uh, the Christians, you know, the traditional Christians have uh, have debated over the authorship of, Hebrew, of the book of Hebrews. Traditionally, we've said it's Paul, but even in my, uh, what, you know, what would look like a fundamentalist uh, <laughs> denomination to you, uh, there is great debate over, you know, probably most would say that Paul didn't write Hebrews because it sounds so different. I happen to think he did write it, but um, that's neither here nor there. Uh, so, so it's a very similar similar thing you have when you look at the text. Uh, but but you have to understand that the Bible is written in a very different way from what we do. We tend to think of like, okay, if Mo- is Moses literally sitting down and writing it? When Paul is writing letters, uh, he is not sitting down in every case and writing it. You have an example where he says, "I Paul write in my own hand" at the at the end of an epistle. But he's he's talking to someone, 
Um, the audiences are different, situations are different, so documents are going to look different depending upon when they're written. That's perfectly natural. An email that you write to someone is going to look different, uh, you know, than to one you might write to another individual. Or, I mean, look, our conversations on camera and off camera are going to sound a bit different too, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's the yeah, same thing for, for the written word. Yeah, and so, well, let's go to the New Testament because, um, and I remember because this is one of the questions I asked Sandra Tanner, um, uh, and I because I, I just flat out said, well, Matthew didn't write Matthew, Mark didn't write Mark, Luke didn't write Luke, and she's yeah. like, yes, they did. Yeah, <laughs> and, and I, I would agree like, with, really? with with Sandra on that, and uh, and I don't really know what kind of church she goes to, but you do see the, kind of the unity of Protestantism and Christianity here because we are going to disagree doctrinally, but then we'll unite pretty strongly around certain things. Like okay. uh, like this authorship issue. So okay, so you think Matthew wrote Matthew? Uh, yeah. Well, no, I know, um, I know he did. <laughs> you know so, he did. Oh wow, that I'm, was pretty strong. I'm confident that he did. I'll put it that way. <laughs> I, I believe uh, that. Yeah, I believe in the traditional authorship. Um, you know, all the way down to you know John wrote Revelation. Uh, you'll bump into Lutheran professors who will say like, "Well, I believe a John wrote it," <laughs> but I believe it's. John the Beloved, who wrote it, and well, and the epistles. From what I understand, so would you, would you agree that Mark was probably the first gospel written? Um, I can I can sympathize with that. Uh, historically, it was um, it was viewed that Matthew was viewed as the first. That's why he's first in the Bible. That's the ancient position. Okay. Uh, the I mean, again, with the Mark and uh, priority. What you end up with is the case is essentially well, it's shorter and more simple. So therefore, the, the theology didn't have the time to develop. It, it looks older because of that. That's why they want to put John later because it is markedly different from the other gospels. Well, and the other the other issue with Mark specifically is supposedly the earliest texts don't have a resurrection; just it's an empty tomb. Well, yeah. The, well, the longer the longer ending, yeah. And there is great debate over the longer ending of Mark. Um, that gets complicated. I think that we need to... So for us, this is where... Um, so a lot of Protestants today, or even fundamentalists, I think this is sort of the great error, is they really don't look at church history uh, deeply um, other right. than when their movement came in. And for me, one of the most important things and one of the most telling things regarding manuscript differences is what did the church use? Um, you know, you're looking at church fathers, you're looking at liturgically which texts are used, why were certain texts preserved in the church? And you can look at it in a, um, in a pessimistic way or an optimistic way. Uh, the pessimistic way says, well, they just, the prevailing theological party took the texts that they wanted to prove their position and made sure that those were, what were used and read within the churches. You can also take the optimistic view that says that those who are nearer you know, in proximity to the time of the apostles, to the time of Christ, might have actually had a better insight into this than we did. Uh, that the church, uh, the Holy Spirit working in her, actually said, uh, "No, this is this is correct." And and so I think apostolic usage of a text is important. And so to me, that actually <laughs> um, gives a little bit of more credence to the longer ending of Mark. Uh, we we actually have that in our confessional documents, portions from that longer ending. Uh, when it talks about, you know, baptism, for example, and what it does, and what neglecting baptism does. Which you can prove those doctrines from from other parts of Scripture, too. I mean, for all the, the crow that people, the, all the crowing about manuscript differences, 
really, if you take out these disputed pieces, you can still prove, you know, a lot of historic Christianity without them. But that doesn't mean we should take them out. <laughs> so, would you agree or disagree that Mark was used as a source for Matthew and Luke? Um, I, I don't think that that necessarily does any uh, disservice to the text. Uh, because you have that with uh, Peter and Jude, right? Uh, they're very similar. And, um, and you know, even Jude quotes Enoch, right? <laughs> so, um, depending on who, which one you think is written first, either Peter or Jude did. But, um, no, I mean, I think that, yeah, I mean, they could... You could certainly hold to that position and uh, and be perfectly fine. I don't think that that's anything uh, really dangerous. I mean, you, the next question is probably going to be about the Q source, right? Uh, I was going to go there, but that wasn't my next question. But, <laughs> but we can go there. That's fine. But I mean, but I mean, the problem with Q is it just doesn't exist. It's a it's a theory. These two gospels are very similar, so they had to borrow from something. And Thomas, I've heard Thomas was Q. No, I, I think that what the extent stuff from Thomas is so much later and so different. I don't think you could you could if there is a cue, I don't think that you can make that into it. Hmm. Okay. Um, but but again, okay, let's say that they are borrowing from an old one or they're you know, um compiling this. Let's say Luke is compiling it from oral tradition handed down. I don't think that that changes the integrities of the story, if that makes sense. Well, yeah, it's just, uh, from what I understand, the reason why people think Mark was first, number one, it was the shortest and it didn't have the resurrection, and, and Matthew and Luke kind of corrected Mark in that sense. But another reason why Mark was first is the Greek is uh, older and, and, and more, there's a lot of grammar errors, and Matthew's better Greek and that kind of a thing. And so Yeah, but think, that, yeah, sure. But uh, th that can be a difference in author. That can be a difference in scribe. Um, that will be like uh, um, looking at Shakespeare and assuming that he came after Twitter because of what you see them writing on there or attempting to write. You know, uh, so the simpler, I mean, that to me is just not a convincing argument. Again, I understand where they're coming from because they believe in a development of a narrative. They believe that in a Christianity being constructed. Now, uh, to be fair, there are a lot of sincerely uh, professing Christians who hold to these hypotheses too, who believe in the miracles. Mm -hmm. So I shouldn't say that the people who hold to these uh, to these views are not Christians. I'm not saying that at all, um, by any stretch of the imagination. But uh, to me, a lot of the arguments they it's like they're looking for a problem and trying to solve it, uh, and and that's a product of um, you know, so we go from let's let's look at like how the church changes right in at the time of the Reformation. Depending upon how you look at Martin Luther, he's either the last medieval scholastic or he's the first humanist. But humanism really continues on, and we're talking about you know artistic humanism, uh, you know, not not the uh, like later secular idea behind it. So they begin to read the Bible in a more critical way, and I mean that term neutrally. That's when you start to get examination of different manuscript traditions. It all really comes out of that. And then by the time you get to the 18th century, you're really beginning to see this. And then, of course, in the 19th century, the field really explodes. And, um, and so you end up with a, a, the entire you know, 
textual critical field. And so it, it's this idea that somewhere along the way the text must have become corrupted. We need to get back to a purer source. And for some people that's very important because that will actually affirm their faith. But for other people, um, they're really looking for a way to undo the faith. And it's interesting that sometimes they arrive at the same conclusions or use the same methodologies. Um, but, yeah. Well, so going back to the the Gospels, um, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm thinking back to my college days when I was in LDS Institute, and I mean, because it's not like the kind of thing that we're going to talk about in a Sunday school class. Like, when was Mark written? When was Matthew written? But my memory is, it seems like most. And I don't want to call LDS Institute teachers scholars, but most most of the LDS Institute teachers would follow the traditional scholarship and say, "Well, Matthew was probably written around 110 A.D. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Mark 70 or 80, if I remember right." Um, and so they they do seem to kind of follow that. Would you think that the Gospels were written closer to the time that Jesus was alive? Uh, yes. Yeah, I believe they're written in the lifetime of their authors. Um, I really uh, do. Um, you know, and I think that, I mean, you know, it's kind of interesting from a Mormon perspective because I would believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, um, you know, depending on how you want to define that. But, and, and again, I don't want to say we believe literal. believe as far as it is translated correctly. As far as it is translated correctly, yeah. Well, it's kind of like with our, you know, to go back to, you know, however long ago that was, I was talking about how we affirm our doctrinal standards in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod because they are in agreement with God's Word. The other alternative uh, that other synods and other groups would adopt is we affirm these standards insofar as they uh, they agree with Scripture. But here's the thing. I can agree with any book insofar as it agrees with Scripture. I can agree with the phone book, Book of Mormon, the Quran, right? What does that mean? Uh, so, um, anyway, so but I digress. Yeah, uh, insofar as it's translated correctly, which is curious uh, to me because the LDS, uh, they, they hung on to the King James. I know, it drives me crazy. <laughs> well, I got you an ESV, right? I know, you did. Uh, <laughs> I appreciate that. But, uh, but I've, got a, I've got a new King James here, which is a different translation. Uh, yeah. You know, I have uh, great respect for something like the New American Standard Bible as well, but I do have a tremendous love and respect for the King James Version too. Um, but it is, it is interesting that the LDS, for whatever reason, has held on to that and not the Joseph Smith translation. But you could also make a case that the Joseph Smith translation doesn't really exist. Uh, well, the, the community of Christ has it, so we can't we can't take it. If, if right, right. I mean, but aren't there a few think, different? Ver- I mean, isn't it? It's not really a full translation. They've sort of compiled sources to make it. Right, am well, I, or am I mistaken there? <laughs> I mean, we've got some new scholarship on that right now. Um, I don't. I don't know if you saw my uh, Thomas Wayment. I did. Interview. Yeah. It's a few years ago, and so he—he's with uh, Claremont, right? No, he's at BYU. Or he's at BYU. Okay. Yeah, he's at BYU, and then Haley—I think her name's Lemon. Um, though they kind of work together on. So, I mean, the traditional thing—the traditional story is Joseph opened up his Bible. Um, he had some revelations. These scriptures were wrong, and so he would write in his Bible. But. What, it, but it looks like he had some what, commentaries available to him. Well, and that's what that's what yeah. Thomas is saying um, is that uh, he he relied on Adam Clark 
for most of the, the the little changes, the little one or two words. Now there are some revelatory passages, especially in Genesis, where Joseph, where Joseph Smith adds a vision of Joseph the mm -hmm. from the Old Testament and adds you know sure. 30, 40 yeah. verses or whatever. <laughs> so that doesn't that's that's different than the Adam Clark stuff. But the little one or two word changes that probably did come from Adam Clark. And I don't know. I. I don't know how our leaders feel about that, but, um, you know, uh, Thomas Wayman's position is, well, you know, if we didn't, if we just updated our King James Bible, we wouldn't need most of the Joseph Smith translation because it's just, you know, fixing the English, basically. Um, mm -hmm. And so, um, but, you know, I know Denver Snuffer and... He's tried to compile a new version, a new kind of a new Joseph Smith translation, but he's a, he's even taken it farther. Well, yeah, I think that's really what I'm getting at. There's that would be a competing version. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. So so Denver's taken Joseph Smith's speeches where he said, "Well, in the Bible it says this," but really, and then he'll expand on it, and then yeah. Denver puts that in his new. I mean, that's the Denver Joseph Smith translation. I mean, here's the thing: it's hard having the gift of revelation to me. It seems exhausting. <laughs> We've just got a, a pretty much a closed canon, so <laughs> all, all of our debates aside, um, we don't really have to worry about somebody getting up. We have to worry about a new tram, a new interpretation, but not necessarily <laughs> new revelation. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about the Apocrypha. I know Martin Luther took out several books. Okay. Um, and, all right. And so this is, this is so this is, uh, and we probably didn't do justice to this when we talked about James. Luther does not take them out. They are pla they are still printed in the Luther Bible, uh, but they are not placed on the same level as uh, as the canonical scriptures. Uh, but they still make an appearance in liturgies, and they're still printed in most Lutheran Bibles up until the modern era, or you know the like the twentieth century. Uh, there has been something of a uh, of a revival in the Apocrypha. Now, it's not going to be read regularly in the churches or anything, but our publishing house, uh, Concordia Publishing House, a few years ago published the Apocrypha uh, with Lutheran notes and things like that. So we don't put them on the same level, but we also, in our confessions, don't have a list of uh, canonical books like you have in, say, the Westminster Confession of the Presbyterians or something. Uh, our confessions come earlier than that. Um, and so you don't even have, in an ecumenical council... A list of what is what are the scriptural books and what are not until the Council of Trent, which is in reaction to the Protestant Reformation, which we wouldn't accept that because it's a later Roman Catholic Council. So the uh, the canon that's approximately what year the Council oh, of Trent. Council of Trent is fifteen. Uh, your your people can see me just googling it, so I can exactly. It's fifteen, oh, but it runs like until fifteen sixty something, fifteen sixty three. I think it's in 1545 okay. it starts, so it takes a while to get It wasn't through. the 1960s or anything. No, that's Vatican II. That's Vatican II. 19, yeah, so that's the one that really changes things. But, yeah, Trent is where you get the first list of, uh, of books. So, Okay. So that would include, like, Ruth, or not Ruth, Esther? No, no, Esther, you know Esther would not be Tobit, uh, Maccabees, you know, the books like that. Okay, so yeah, so those are the Catholic Bible, but not really in Protestant Bibles. Correct. Anymore, and, and, and again, um, you know, you'll historically it ha it was a part of Lutheran Bibles. I mean, historically it's part of the King James Bible. 
too. Don't forget that. But they're just not placed at the same level. But there has been a revival. Because uh, you know, so we don't even include Maccabees or Tobit or... No, mo- most modern uh, uh, printings of the King James won't, won't do that. You have to really seek one out. Yeah. But then you get sort of the even the the extra books beyond that, like Enoch and things, which your your boy Hugh Nibley really really got into. So there's a whole other you know pseudepigraphal section as well. So there are all kinds of extra books if you really want to get into it, uh, and and they are they are useful for instruction. They they are important books. I think we need to make that clear that they they give us a better uh, historical understanding of the context of the biblical people in certain periods. So they they should be read and studied. Okay. Um, we've chatted about this on Facebook, but I'd uh, also like to get your opinions on the Jesus Seminar. What do you think of them? Um, it is, it is, academics and theology done via democracy. So what could go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> so they, they, you know, they essentially vote on did Jesus say this or not, and they presuppose. Um, that nothing supernatural is happening, and so obviously big red flags for me. Okay. Um, but I know that, that, that that's your thing. I know you were watching a lot of History I, Channel I love in the, the 90s. Jesus Seminar. I think they're way cool. So, But I'm, I'm heretical probably. So, <laughs> <laughs> That's where I get all my good scholarship. you got the multiple Isaiahs, your documentary hypothesis, you know, um, authorship of the various Pauline letters and that sort of thing. Yeah, but I can trade you all of that and give you a living and historic Jesus. So, I mean, it's, you know, it's a good deal. <laughs> it just defined Jesus a little differently, but yeah. Well, cool. Um, I don't think we ever finished your Word of Wisdom thing. and, and I'm, I'm, I'm Oh, sure, yeah. Um, you know, uh, yeah, well, yeah, we were talking about the, the generational differences, and I went off and I accidentally slandered the good people at SWIG. Um, so, I mean, like, here's, here's my thing. There are two, you know, uh, and I know you, you, you disagree on this vehemently, but um, I think that Postum is one of the greatest things ever. And, oh. I, and, and, I, and uh, their web store is closed. It's really hard to get right now. So if anybody could say a prayer for Postum, please do it. Uh, and so, so now at home, so I told myself, I'm just going to drink coffee at the office. And it turns out I'm spending way too much time in the office. Uh, but, uh, I have this thing called Pero in the kitchen right now. And it's just, it's just not the same. Isn't that, it tastes just as bad as Postum. Uh, no, it doesn't, it doesn't have the ro- the full body of Postum. Um, I mean, the I, other thing that dad, I, yeah, the other thing that you well, all my have. My dad's a convert. He used to like Postum, but, yeah, <laughs> Well, the other thing awful. you guys have a like on, a lock on in your region that I can't get here is, uh, Arctic Circle Fry Sauce, which does not violate oh. the word of wisdom, but it is, uh. <laughs> Like I, it's prohibitively expensive on Amazon, and I'm just I'm also asking for Arctic Circle to please expand out here, so I can blend in very well in your neck of the woods. I could, you know, I could go incognito. I could Lutheranize you all clandestinely, and you wouldn't know until it was too late. It's not just Arctic Circle that has it. I think every restaurant has it. I know. Uh, oh yeah, they do, but but I believe that Arctic Circle, um, you know, really takes the crown. Uh, but there, yeah. are, I've I've tried a Hires, which was pretty good. There's Hires out there, I think. Have you been to uh, Crown Burger? I've not. No. Would you? Oh, they there's they've got really good fry sauce there. So and and great burgers too. Well, there you go. Whenever I make it out to uh, to the Holy Land, there, I'll uh, yeah, I'll be sure to to find it. There you go. Well, as far as uh, so, word of wisdom, you know, the the kind of the story is, 
and, the, and I get this from Greg Prince, is um, when Joseph Smith said hot drinks, he meant hot drinks. And Greg says the idea was there was a moderation movement. And mm -hmm. they didn't have refrigeration back then. If they had, then they would have said avoid cold drinks too. Um, because the idea was you don't want anything too hot, too cold. And so yeah, at yeah, the yeah. time, in Joseph Smith's day, the only hot drinks were coffee and tea. So well, it was pretty clear those were what should be avoided. Now, various um, leaders have said, well, chocolate has caffeine and it should we... Should we well, yeah, it came to mean yeah, somehow it came to mean caffeine, and I think that that's a reasonable interpretation of that, right? That oh, it wasn't yeah. the temperature we were worried about. But then there's no prohibition now on colas, so what At do you BYU. do? Yeah, you can get coke <laughs> at BYU now. It's nothing sacred. Um, so, but you know, I've I've also you know I went to a college that didn't. And they certainly didn't prohibit coffee, but they were teetotalers as far as alcohol went and as far as tobacco was concerned. So I went to a campus that was very similar. And honestly, some of those people would have done a lot better without uh, soda. So. Uh, and and so yeah, I, it is interesting. Yeah, maybe maybe he has a point there. Maybe that the moderation movement was was part of that. I do know, for example, uh, that other groups that develop a bit later in the nineteenth century, certain holiness movements and others, they considered putting ice in drinks sinful. Oh wow! Because it was considered a worldly luxury that you had to manufacture ice. So uh, they also uh, condemned neckties too. So your missionaries are in trouble with those groups. Yeah, exactly. But I don't know anybody who holds to that now. But you'll, you'll You notice I don't wear ties very often. So Right. Well, that's the only reason I wear the collar all the time is so I don't have to tie a tie. Uh, <laughs> no, you'll, you'll find me in uh, street clothes uh, pretty regularly. So, uh, mm -hmm. But anyway, um, so... But the 19th century was an interesting time for health movements and things like that. I mean, look at the history of cornflakes and Kellogg and Seventh-day Adventists and things like that. This was so that would not surprise me if his if his theory didn't hold hold a lot of water. But again, you're dealing with revelation now, so you know, in your context, if you have a prophet who comes and says this is the interpretation, to what degree are you duty bound to obey that? Now there's debate on that, right? Definitely. Yeah, it depends on whether you're liberal or conservative, so Right. And, you know, what would Brigham Young do? What would Brigham Although, Young drink? Any more of the conservatives are starting to have a problem, and I don't want to turn too political, but, you know, President Nelson's a, a surgeon, uh, been to medical school. He said, get a vaccine, and, of course, that's not a politically conservative position, and so we've got some conservative members probably for the first time in their lives saying, yeah, I don't care what President Nelson says about vaccine, I'm, you know, or masks, I'm not going to wear them. Um, so that's, for the liberals, it's been kind of nice to say, see, you don't, you don't follow the prophet all the time either. <laughs> well, I mean, and that's, okay, so, for instance, not all Roman, Roman Catholics are not bound by every word the Pope says. But when he speaks ex cathedra, their conscience is now bound. And to me, that would be uh, one of the difficulties of, Mormon, of LDS theology, or really any Mormon theology, as most of them have prophets, would be, you know, can my conscience, what, what can bind my conscience? Can, can my conscience be bound by something outside of Scripture? Uh, that would be a, a tricky one for us. Now, I know that one of the objections to us would be, well, you, you hold the Nicene Creed and you bind people's consciences to that. Yeah, that's true, but again, it's because of the exposition of Scripture there. And, and that's an interesting question I think that every Mormon has to answer 
to what degree can my conscience be bound by by a prophet? And what would you say to, to something like that? That's a good question. Um, I mean, we all have our own personal revelation. Uh, at least we, we, we claim that. And, mm -hmm. you know, so uh, everybody's supposed to pray and, and hopefully get the same answer. You know, we, we want to be one. Um, but, you know, I mean, we if you if you go, you go back and look at Scripture, I want to, you know, go back to... Uh, Job, you know, he was kind of racist, and I so I know some of our past prophets have been racist and have proclaimed, especially with the the priesthood ban, um, proclaimed that this was God's will, and now we're like, eh, we don't, you know, the 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 brethren tried it really hard not to throw any of the previous leaders under the bus, um, but we've got the gospel topics essay that says, yeah, some of our leaders kind of followed the teachings of the day and. I know that essay specifically um, <laughs> tries tries to say that well it was God's will but maybe not but and it doesn't really come come down to it and so because they don't want to throw I mean it's pretty easy to throw Brigham Young under the bus on that um, and 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 all the succeeding prophets and so that's something the church just has to wrestle with um, I, sometimes. You know, looking at it from a historical lens, you know, these are these are issues that a lot of, and I don't I don't even know how Lutherans have have dealt with with issues of race, um, but you know, a lot of these things kind of apply to LGBT issues as well. Um, well, I mean, if you judge any any nineteenth century person by the standards of the day, you're going to call them racist, and that's a you know, I don't I'm not going to I'm not going to do that to to them. Um, but you know we we you know have had uh, we had a black seminary uh, for a long time until we didn't. I mean, then everything's integrated. We relatively early on in our history made inroads uh, founding black congregations in the South. Um, and and to even say black congregation, and it, it seems like a strange thing because we'll have historically black congregations, but then that wouldn't really be that diverse, would it? Um, is that really the idea? Yeah. Uh, so nobody ever asked that question, and I know we got to be careful talking about that uh, YouTube algorithms and everything. But um, no, we have, you know, we we our, our is, um, issues with that would have been common to. I mean, you, you look back, we're going to be predominantly white because we come from German and Scandinavian people predominantly. But that doesn't mean that we haven't had outreach to those groups and haven't always given them, you know, full admission as far as membership goes or they could serve as pastors and things like that well and i know uh, i mean if you could speak a little bit more to this i know within the baptist church um the the southern baptist convention split from the baptist church mainly over how over race issues uh, i'm trying to remember i think the issue was whether you could be a good slaveholder and, and be a good church member, if I remember right. And the yeah. Southern Baptist said yes, and the Northern Baptist said no. You shouldn't own slaves. Um, yeah, and, and you see that. But, you see but that there's been happening. segregated. I mean, Martin Luther King said the most segregated day uh, is Sunday because you look at the black churches and the white churches. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the LDS, from our perspective, <laughs> I mean, the, the, there's been the thing, well, we've never had black 
black wards and white wards. We've always been integrated, mm -hmm. but we we haven't gone out of our way to uh, do missionary work among blacks. So, anyway. But, but yeah, I, but I mean, I, they've. I mean, have they really turned? I mean, I don't know. I mean, did they did they not knock on certain neighborhoods' doors? I mean, I, I'm obviously not qualified to speak to that, of course. Well, yeah, they they. I mean, Matt Harris has done a lot of work on that, and. Especially in Brazil, um, the missionaries were instructed, okay, go look in the pictures on the wall. If you see black people, don't teach them because they can't get priesthood. You know, because especially in Brazil, they intermarry a lot. And so right, that yeah. was, Brazil was such a problem. But even even in places like Minnesota, you know, you'd have, there's a, Matt tells a story about a, a black family that wanted to join the church. And I think di actually did. And made a white, all the white people uncomfortable, and so they were like, "Can you just not come to church?" Yeah, and that's, and that's a, <laughs> I mean, it's I mean, terrible. That's, it's terrible. Yeah, yeah. And so we we have a lot of of racial recognition to do. But I think but you'll I find think, that in a lot of denominations too. Exactly. Exactly. And, but you know, you'll find weird things. My first uh, call at a seminary, there were two white people in the congregation: me and uh, and my piano player. So, oh, wow. <laughs> so, uh, but Spanish mission. So. Um, you know, it, you'll you'll find you'll find exceptions and things like that. Uh, but you know, I I just don't. Is it? You know, people are going to argue that racism is still a big problem in American Christianity, and I'm just very careful about demonizing anyone over that, throwing that word out. It makes me makes me uncomfortable to to demonize someone on those standards. Well, and and I know lately we've been talking a lot about Christian nationalism. Mm -hmm. um, would you say that's a, a problem in Lutheran church? Um, well, it depends on if you think nationalism is a problem or not. Um, can I mean, you, you all are building Zion, so I don't think that Mormons by nature have a problem with, you know, a Christianized nation per se. Uh, so I guess, I guess... Unless we're the minority getting beat up. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, if... Uh, historically, nations have had a national religion, so I think that this is something that um, is complicated by the fact that we're uh, uh, secular Americans, uh, two centuries moved away from the Constitution. I think it's hard for us to wrap our minds around that. Uh, when people hear Christian nationalism, I, I don't know, you know, if they're thinking like white nationalism, like we're going to have, you know, neo-Nazi government. Yeah, okay, that. That would be an issue, but I also don't think that there's a big movement asking for that among Lutherans at all, uh, or anything like that. Uh, I mean, there's probably no serious movement among major denominations, you know, with that. If, if that's what you mean by Christian nationalism. Yeah, it just seems like, you know, the it, it seems like, as far as Christian nationalism, the way I understand it, is it's kind of embedded a little bit with white supremacy, and we want to make this a Christian nation, we want to outlaw abortion, we want to make our laws very Christian, and as a Mormon, I will say, with a history of being persecuted by the majority Christians around us, it makes me very nervous to... Uh, essentially create kind of an evangelical Christian nation because the evangelicals don't want the Catholics in charge. They don't want the Mormons in charge. Yeah. They don't want the Muslims in charge for sure or the Jews or anybody else. It's like you have to be an evangelical Christian. Mm -hmm. And I think that is a, a problem in a pluralistic society. Um, and Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's the point that I'm, 
you know trying to make here is that it's it's hard for us to fathom that because we do have a like you say a pluralistic society i mean a borderline syncretic society uh so but but again this is something that is kind of post you know the united states uh if we go back three centuries this would have been natural uh there would have been anglican countries and lutheran countries and presbyterian nations and we wouldn't have thought anything about that uh but because of our form of government because of what's happened to the western world that kind of thinking is unthinkable even curiously even in countries that still have state churches (laughs) so we're all a product of our time rick (laughs) what will they demonize us for on mormon podcast 20 years from now (laughs) we'll find out i guess all right well i think i've run out of questions do you have any for me do you want to finish up with anything um, let's see. I think we beat the dead horse of the word of wisdom pretty well, and all we talked about was, uh, you know, was was hot drinks. Nobody ever talks about eating meat sparingly. They they brush that under, you know, they sort of brush That's that away. Sure. Um, no, I don't think I have. Did we did we hit all the did we hit all the topics? The, the generational thing. I think we forgot about that because um, Jana in Jana Reese's research, she said that uh, some of the I don't know what you call them, Gen Z. They're the current teenagers, I'll say it that way, um, say they're living with the word of wisdom, but they'll drink coffee or tea, and they don't see that as a problem. But um, people of my generation would say, oh, you're not following the word of wisdom. So I think there is a little bit of difference coming up with the, the rising generation on word of wisdom there. But Well, you know, who knows? Um you know, I, you know. Do you think the LDS is taking a a rightward shift, or do you think that, um, do you think do you think the uh, Exmos and and certain, uh, if I can use your 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 words, uh, are are going to to win the day? Because that's that's sort of what I see as an outsider, as a Gentile looking in. Um, you know, the traditional Mormons are really, um, especially younger ones. There are there are some that are really standing firm with the historic positions of Mormonism, which I think is interesting. There are uh, those who are really just trying to pull Mormonism into just kind of generic progressive Christianity. Uh, then there's guys like uh, you know um, Mu Mao Muel whatever uh, who who actually believes Richard that Mowell. yeah that, that Mormonism is orbiting uh, much closer to traditional Christianity. Um, I'm not I'm not sure I know which which direction anything's going to go. I'm not a prophet so. <laughs> well, and I don't know. It seems like they take a step left and then they take a step right, and it's kind of meandering back and forth. Um, I don't know. I don't know what it's going to do. Yeah, I mean, here, I mean, but you're an interesting, uh, you know, you're an interesting uh, case here because, you know, you're you're dealing with many different perspectives from within Mormonism or from without. You know, you have people like me and Steve Pinecker on and Chris Chris Thomas, things like that. Um, and yet, you would say that with all the history that you've seen with all the controversy that you've seen, that you still have a testimony for Joseph Smith and for the Book of Mormon. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're going to have to give us a little answer because in case they're listening to the audio. (laughs) (laughs) But but just like I... But I I don't... You know, the the funny thing about it is there's the saying... The Catholics say the Pope's infallible, but nobody believes it. And the Mormons yeah. say prophets are fallible, but nobody believes it. <laughs> yeah, and, and I wasn't um, saying this, you know, as like to grill you or anything, but um, it, it's interesting that you can have, that you can dig deep 
uh, into these things, have all these questions, but you still would, would affirm the truth of it, where yeah. some people are going to see the same thing you do, and then their whole sort of life becomes tearing it down. Yeah, and I mean, I like I said, and I'm I'm a little different because I look at the Bible and those prophets are all messed up, and I don't. And so, I, from my perspective, Joseph Smith and Brigham Young are are no you, you would, less yeah. imperfect than Abraham or mm-hmm. Jacob or Job or any of those people. Um, I mean, God uses imperfect people, um, sometimes really imperfect people. And, yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, that's I guess the message is. He uses me too. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm clearly imperfect. Um, so uh, I mean I don't know. <laughs> I, it seems like whenever people say, "Well, do you believe in Joseph Smith and Brigham Young?" Because they're you know racists and polygamists and blah blah blah. And I'm like, so is Jacob and Abraham and Moses. Yeah. And, you well, know. And, you know, and I think really I think from from those who are outside, the biggest thing we see, you know, more than, than the moral issue is is the changing nature of revelation. I think that's what concerns us. But it's interesting to hear you say, you know, that polygamy troubles you when it would be divine revelation. I mean, I guess it could still trouble you, but you would still agree that it was divine. Well, Abraham troubles me, you know. Yeah. Like I said, the, the way he treated Hagar is disgusting to me. Um, and even, you know, Moses had multiple wives, and David and Solomon, you know, it, 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 it bothered, all, the, all those stories bother me. Um, you know, we just had a, a lesson in Sunday school on how Jacob stole the, the birthright from mm-hmm. Esau, and... You you don't think you don't think the, he gave him a good deal? <laughs> you know, I'm sitting yeah, but, here but, and I'm but just the, saying, but but you've got to read that on. full story. I mean, you're, you're on Jacob. I love Esau. Have I hated the in the you know the birthright? You know all these things. But I mean, look at how beautiful. But that it's story not just the, that. But he dressed up like Esau and like he purposely yeah. was deceptive here, and 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 the Sunday school teacher was like, "But that was God's will," you know. And I'm like, are, are you sure that was God's will? <laughs> or was that Jacob's will? Because it, it sounds like Jacob's will, but I don't know that Jacob and God were on the same page there. Ah, but, but before they were, J- Jacob, if I love Esau's, have I hated? I mean, that is what the scripture says. So before before either one was either born, Paul makes clear. So full of revelation in the New Testament. <laughs> See, I think a lot of revelation is very self-serving. <laughs> You know, um, I mean, that was that was one of the big complaints about Joseph Smith was, you know, some of his revelations are very self-serving, and I, I would say that with Jacob. And he I would comes say across that with a little bit like that. I mean, if you if you read yeah. um, if you read what Joseph is writing and some of the things he's like, he's you know he he does come across that way. I would I would, so, I would agree with that. I mean, I don't even I I don't think that's a mistranslation. What happened between Jacob and Esau? So I, I don't chalk that up to a mistranslation. Joseph certainly didn't correct it. Um, and so if, if we're going to take that story at face value, oh, I, I got big problems with Jacob stealing the birthright. I mean, he, you know, he was deceptive. It was, I don't know. And but it so, is interesting. I, I love seeing you wrestle with these texts. At least you feel something about it. At least you're, yeah, you're struggling with it. It bothers me. And, and see, but this is the thing that worries me, and and not just, and I see this with the ex Mormon crowd, but I also see a lot of similar things with uh, people who are leaving Christianity, which is, um, they begin to have questions and they completely jettison everything, 
I know. And and so that and of course I'm a pastor, so of course that's going to trouble me uh, because they they're taught that you can't question or you can't have a struggle with doubt and things like that, and that really is part of the Christian experience, part of the Christian life, and that God is guiding us through those too. That you can ask questions, that you can dig deep into this. I believe, you know, firmly that that the more you dig into history, the more you find the real Christ. And so you, I'm not worried when people dig into this. Uh, now, now I, I want them to have good teachers. That's not what I'm saying, but but uh, but that um, you know we don't have to, to to say that every time you have doubt that you just that you just throw everything throw everything away. See, but let me ask you this because these these are the kind of conversations. I'm I'm not exaggerating when I say I can't have these conversations at church. Like it'll the, the Sunday school teacher will be like, "Whoa, what are you doing? You know, you're you're calling Jake and Jacob." And even, I mean, it's fine. I can talk to you. I can talk to Chris Thomas, and it's kind of a one a one time thing. But if you had somebody like me in your Sunday school class that was like. Jacob was wrong, you know. Abraham was wrong. Wouldn't that drive you crazy? Well, look, you can, <laughs> like, could, you should, could you handle somebody like me in your class saying, "I got a problem with Abraham. I got a problem with should, Jacob." You should visit and see my Sunday school class. You would not feel out of place. I promise. Really? Um, yeah, um, and you know, if I if if all I do is okay, Rick, I'll, we'll get to you another time. No, um, <laughs> but <laughs> well, that's what um, happens. Yeah, but but. But pedagogically, um, how am I supposed to teach you if I don't know the questions that you have? And so to, 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 to shy away from questions doesn't help me help you grow or to learn. And so, um, yeah, I mean, some people ask questions. You might get a little annoyed. Um, if any, I hope none of my congregation is listening uh, or any of my previous <laughs> congregations. But, no, I don't get annoyed. By, I never get annoyed by questions. Um, there are no stupid questions. Uh, sometimes you'll be asked uh, difficult questions, and, and that's fine. Uh, and we wrestle with those. There, there are uh, difficult things. We're going through the book of Acts right now, for example, um, in our Sunday Bible class. And, you know, 50 people in there, there's, there's a lot of different uh, questions. And the book of Acts shows you uh, a church that is not... Uh, without conflict, a church that is not without messy situations and sometimes seemingly contradictory things happening. And so we that's one why I believe firmly in preaching or uh, teaching through a text because I can't skip over verses that way. You know, I've, I've got to deal with them as they come. And so when we come to difficult things, we, we, we talk about it and we take all questions that come and we, and we talk through those. Uh, and we, and we, we need that. We need, we need that open... That open atmosphere. Yeah, I mean, and, and this is why, because you can't you can't talk about this kind of stuff in the LDS church, and and maybe your church is different. Um, uh, well, you know, and, and look, I'm I'm one man. I know that there will be certain certain teachers who don't like any questions at all, and they'll mm-hmm. handle it a different way. But me personally, uh, Pastor Vril speaking, I guess, <laughs> um, uh, put my pastor hat on. Uh, th- that is how. I would. Uh, that's how I teach a class. I, I need those questions because I need to know uh, where my where my people are, and how and how to teach them and and how to help them. And, and really, if they make me wrestle with difficult things, it helps me too. Well, yeah, and I, you know, I think there are some people like me. I love the wrestle. You know, I I don't want to throw Christianity out with the bathwater. Um, yeah. 
and, and that's what and that's what but, really. But yeah. some people are like, you know what? Abraham was a jerk. I'm out of here. Well, I don't. I well, don't like and that's this. the thing. So you know, you see someone leave the LDS Church. They're listening to whatever sources, and they're not jettisoning jettisoning Mormon particulars. They are completely closed off to God in any sense after that. So never mind. You know, do I want to see them come to Nicene to Trinitarian Christianity? Of course I do. But they are rejecting the, the whole idea of God, of traditional morality as revealed in the scriptures, which we would largely agree upon. Um, you know, uh, as far as, you know, how God makes us and the family and things like that. Uh, they, they are throwing, you know, every everything away. Uh, uh-oh, I said throw everything away, and now I know that that deals with actually a, a controversy <laughs> that the Mormons are having right now that I won't mention because we're, we're late in the podcast. But what I mean by that is they're jettisoning every, um, you know, every faithful belief. And that, and that to me is very troubling because I see the same thing in traditional Christian circles. Well, and I think there's two different issues. One of the things, the, the ex-Mormon crowd um, is very vocal um, one of the things I loved about Jana Reese's book, The Next Mormons, um, was she talked about why why people leave. And while the ex-Mormon, and it seems like that's who you're kind of talking about right now, the, the, the vocal ones, I don't like church yeah. history, I don't like polygamy, well, well, I'm I don't saying like whatever. That, that they're, other than like they're looking, they sound to me very similar to those who are leaving traditional Christianity. It's just they okay. have a pit stop. And their pit stop is contradictory accounts of the first vision. Their pit stop is polygamy. But they end uh-huh. up arriving at the same positions as the people who leave traditional Christianity. They begin to deny well, any concept of the divine or the supernatural, things like that. But but one of the things that Jana's research says is that uh, some Mormons are... The majority of Mormons who leave, and that's what I want to co- focus mm-hmm. on. And I know this really ticks off the ex-Mormons because they're like, "No, I left over church history," and I'm sure I'm sure that you did. You know, I'm not I'm not disputing that, but I'm saying the majority of Mormons who leave leave because, hey, I married a Lutheran or I married a Baptist, and you know, I'm just going to go to church with them just to keep well, peace. And, I mean, look, we we have the same issue, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. and so that I I think. Especially among the ex-Mormon crowd, the the vocal ex-Mormon crowd, that is underappreciated. That oh, I'm just I'm going to go join the Episcopalians or whatever. Yeah, so they're, um, they're that's actually a much larger segment of ex-Mormons. Yeah, you would say then the, that the that the vocal ones are just having to be louder. They don't actually represent a. Well, no, I I, I think they're growing, but they are a minority. I, I, mm-hmm. I just want to keep that in mind. But. But I think we have this infusion of religion and politics. You know, um, the the whole abortion debate has has come up, and then and not just that, but you've got LGBT issues, gay marriage, sure. um, and so you've got. And this kind of relates back to the Christian nationalism. You've got this group of people that want to make this a Christian nation. Um, that and and they will quote people like Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, who actually didn't like I mean Jefferson wrote his own Bible, right? <laughs> the, the Jefferson well, Bible. Edited it. And so they weren't they weren't traditional Christians in any sense. Um and they wanted to keep it more more of a pluralistic and and not have a religion in charge. But the there's there's a, a segment of evangel of vocal evangelicals that are like, no, we're gonna take over the government, you know, we're gonna anoint Donald Trump to be our King Cyrus to get abortion um 
band basically and that's really ticking off a lot of people um, that are leaving religion because religion and politics are, are combining together well, and they're I, like, I, 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 I don't like in, this. In point taken, but the, the problem happens on the left side of the paradigm too. I mean, there, there are leftist Christians who believe that it's a holy thing to lobby for pro-choice causes. And that would be also mingling theology and politics too. No, but it's different because you don't have, like who, you've got your, your Jesse Jackson and your, oh, I guess he would be on the left, oh, but no, you've I mean, got have, your, yeah, no, it I seems mean, like you have a lot more, even, you know, uh, who's the Catholic guy, uh, Santorum, um, that are very anti-abortion. I mean, Joe, Joe Biden's a Catholic, too. I guess he's a left one, and, and Rick Santorum's on the right. right but no, but, you but it have... seems like the Republican Party specifically has been hijacked by the evangelicals, and I do not see the same thing on the Democratic Party side. Um, well, okay. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying now, but, but there are definitely very vocal um, Democrat clergy, uh, Democrat-leaning uh, clergy who are, who are lobbying from a theological perspective. Um, you know, saying that this is this is what God would want. They're they're bringing God into it too, and and you know, I mean that that would obviously present an issue as well. Um, yeah, the the evangelicals are more closely tied and a more visible religious presence with with the Republicans. I think that there's no doubt, but I do think that you're actually seeing among young traditional Christians a shift away from that, but not a shift toward. Um, the left, but a a form of traditional conservatism that is different from the neoconservative viewpoint of you know the the Bush era or something like that. So you are seeing a greater concern, uh, a very different economic view among young right leaning Christians, uh, one that is not uh, content to allow corporations to exploit people the way they've been doing. So you're you're actually going to find a much uh, more difficult to pin down political spectrum among younger Christians, and I think that's going to surprise a lot of people. Uh, they're going to be, um, yeah, they're going to be anti-choice. They're going to be pro-life, but you're also going to find economically, uh, governmentally, a rather different view. I, I really do see that emerging as well, and I, and I think that's part of the generation gap that you're seeing. Well, and I think that's a reason why people are leaving religion is because they don't like religion being tied up with politics. Or, or, or I think we could say they don't like the type of religion that is being tied to politics. Uh, because everybody, <laughs> okay. loves, everybody loves when their side's winning. It doesn't right. matter who you are. Yeah, uh, that's true. Yeah, and so that, that's kind of all I'm try, trying to say what that is. Um, it depends on, on who has the power, right? Well, it just seems like, you know, the Christian coalition from the Reagan era, um, they tried to be kind of big tent. They tried to include Mormons. <laughs> but it seems like it's kind of fractured a little bit, and then like, eh, we don't really like the Mormons. Yeah, um, didn't Falwell try to, he didn't yeah. really want it, and then he saw how much, you know, you guys have a lot of money, so maybe we'll bring you in. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, I mean, I, I probably shouldn't mix too much religion and politics here, but like Robert Jeffries, that guy drives me crazy. Yeah, I know you're not um, a Robert Jeffries, uh, oh Jeffries fan. And, and I do think that, yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a little... You know, problematic when you see a billboard with verses about Jesus applied to Trump or any politician. Makes me a little right. nervous. I, and, and the same thing with Obama. When they would paint him up in icons or put halos on him, that makes me uncomfortable, too. Uh, yeah. you know, regardless of party, Christ is Christ. He's my Savior. Mm -hmm. 
And so that we need to be careful with that. All right. Well, is there anything else we need to talk about? As I kick my my webcam before I go. Um, Well, no, I've I've had a lot of fun. I think this is probably a a very different Gospel Tangents episode. Yeah, definitely, definitely, that's for sure. So, all right. Well, Pastor Willie Grills. Oh, you know, I do have one more thing. Okay, good, because I don't want to end on the the politics thing. It's my least favorite thing to talk about. You know, usually I start the conversation, I say, where did you go to school, and, you know, give us your background, and I never asked you that, so we'll, we'll finish on that. Yeah, uh, no, I, uh, you know, cashed in enough box tops and got a mail, no, um, so, <laughs> I, uh, so, sparing my work history and everything, um, I did uh, my undergraduate work at Kentucky Christian University, which is a, a Christian church, Church of Christ, a Campbellite school, if I can use an insulting oh. term. Uh, and uh, bachelor's in uh, humanities and Greek. And I did my master's of divinity at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. So that is our, uh, you know, one of our two seminaries. And so that's a Lutheran school, I guess? Uh, yeah, it belongs to the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Okay, so is that a master's degree, PhD? Ma- it's a master's, yeah, I have a master's in divinity okay. so far. Okay, master's in divinity. And how did you lose your Kentucky accent? I uh, I spent ten years in radio, and so that beats it out of you. I still have uh, you know a vestigial accent. I have to preserve some of it, you know. Uh, <laughs> but um, and maybe being in Arkansas, I'll get the twang back a little thicker. But yeah, I would I, blame radio uh, <laughs> for why people can't understand me back home. Because you just recently moved from Arkansas to Arkansas from Illinois. Illinois, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah uh, Illinois, which is uh, you know that stained land, uh, according to your hymn, right? <laughs> they, they changed it. The good neighbor policy. Am I am I am I right? Uh, they changed yep. uh, praise to the man. They they should have kept it in there. <laughs> long uh, um, long shall his blood, which was shed by assassins, stain Illinois while the earth lauds his fame. I believe were the original yeah. lyrics. I, that, that sounds right to me too. So, so you left. So because. Tell us a little bit more. Um, you so you went to Concordia to get your your master's in divinity. Mm-hmm. I know you spent some time in South America. So, yeah, how, so tell us all about uh, that. Yeah, our our seminary program works this way. It's typically four years. Um, the third year is what we call a vicarage. That is where you would be. You are not ordained yet. You're called it. You're a vicar. You are assigned to a church. Uh, I w- you don't know where you're going, so they have a service, and then they call out your assignment. Um, and so I was initially assigned to Lima, Peru, um, but I also did some vicarage uh, time in Iowa as well. Um, so then you come back for a year. So you've got your vicarage year or two. Um, typically, if they send you overseas, they want to get you for two. Um, and then, <laughs> then they send you back. You're in classes again for a year. And then comes call night where you receive your first call to a congregation or, or wherever you're going. And again, you typically don't know where you're going. And so my first call was uh, to a Spanish mission in western Iowa, um, reaching out to the Spanish speakers there. And then from there, Illinois. So do you speak Spanish? I, guess I do. You know. Yeah. yeah did, you, did you know that before you went to Peru? Uh, not as good as I did later. <laughs> Um, but but my wife uh, is Panamanian, so I've got a you know a live-in translator, so that certainly helps. Oh, she's American right. too, but yeah, yeah. Panamanian background. Okay, so so you're in Iowa, and then 
how, so, I mean, how did you, I know you ended up in Illinois and, and now Arkansas, so tell us about yeah, that so, journey a little bit. Uh, well, so our polity is a little bit different. We don't have bishops in the traditional sense, so we don't we can't be told where to go, except for that first in seminary. You better take that first call or you're in trouble. Um, but after that, uh, you know, the congregation always calls. So a congregation will go to the district. So we're divided into districts uh, and then synod. So that's how we're circuit, district, synod. Congregation, circuit, district, synod. Uh, they will apply for a candidate from a seminary, but it's still the congregation, we believe, has to issue the call uh, to a person, so to a, to a pastor. Um, so once you're out of seminary, though, um, any congregation can call you. Um, sometimes you'll interview, sometimes you won't, uh, but that's where we go. So we've got our congregations, which call pastors. At the district level, we have district presidents, who are uh, the pastors who oversee us in a given district. And then kind of at the head of the synod, you have the synod president. So ULDS guys will like those titles, I think. <laughs> but, um, and that's a peculiarity. Uh, that happened to us um, because of kind of how we ended up in America. And we lost our bishop when we got here, which is a long and scandalous story. And the question was, can you be Lutheran without a bishop? And we decided, sure, yeah, you can. That it's the congregation has a right to call a pastor, so... Okay. So how did you get from Iowa to Illinois to Arkansas? Um, congregations kept calling me. And uh, really? that, that's a very difficult thing uh, for you know every pastor that I've ever talked to is, now it's on us. Uh, do we accept the call or not? And you know the, it's a little bit more of a tricky process because a district president will recommend a list of names to a congregation that they can then call from or they can add names, whatever. So... Through a series of processes, your name might end up on a list at a church. And then they will decide to call you, and then the call comes to you, and you have to decide uh, if you're going to stay where you're at or or, or go. And an uh, extremely difficult decision to make. And I wish I had a good answer I could give to the podcast of why I took my calls, but I'm, I am where I am. <laughs> okay. So... Yeah, that's just interesting. So the congregation in Arkansas, really, you were just, there was a list of names, and they prayed and picked you, Yeah, and, uh, and you didn't know them, and they didn't know you? Well, or? They'll, they'll typically, nowadays, um, you'll you'll usually interview. In the old days, and, and even to this day, in some congregations, an interview is verboten, and some pastors will not do an interview. They believe it interferes with the Holy Spirit calling someone. So they don't want any kind of thing in between. Um they will receive a file from us that our district president keeps uh, with information that we have written about our doctrinal positions and other notes that they write about us. <laughs> so they have files on us. Um, the uh, The congregations will see those, then they'll choose to interview, possibly, and then call based upon that. But So, so when you're on a Mormon podcast, is that a bad check mark you're going to get? Well, it, de- it depends. Maybe I get that call to you know Sandy or something, but I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Which we do have a very good church there, if you want to check it out. Uh, yeah, there's a, I, I, there's a, several Lutheran churches here in Utah I'm, I'm familiar with. So. You just gotta, you just got to pick the right one, yeah. And I, and I have a friend uh, um, that got called to the Salt Lake area. I think we were in the same class. Um, I won't mention his name for fear of doxing or something. But. <laughs> well, cool. All right, well, Pastor Willie Grills, um, appreciate you being here on Gospel Tangents. I know we well, spent... 
almost three hours, I think. So. Yeah, my, my pleasure. Well, I, you know, at first when we started talking about this, I'm like, is there anything that I can bring that Steve Pineker can't? Or you know, and it, it, it you know because, but all different all different perspectives, right? Oh and, yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, so. it's it's been fun. I've I've really enjoyed it, and I, I thank you for your time. Well, and I hope we can model this, you know, on my mission, I used to be like, you're wrong. And I, and I hope that we can model this, that, yeah, we can have differences, the very big differences, but still we can get along. And Well, I hope nobody I could come away from this discussion thinking that we're embracing the quite the same theology or perspectives. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. That would be bad. So, all right. Well, thanks again. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Pastor Reverend Willie Grills. Uh, Willie, great uh, talking to you. I think it was a fun conversation. Really enjoyed the atonement theory stuff again. And I appreciate you being on the show. Thanks again.